to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense. 
and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome back to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, on Facebook, iTunes, iHeart, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, SHR Media, and I don't know a half a dozen other places you can find me at. Just go to the name of the show. It's Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-Sense.com. But as always, there's always a snafu whenever we broadcast. If you do go to our webpage, you're not going to be able to see the video, but you can hear the audio uh, on there. Uh, Just click on the SHR uh, or the Blog Talk bar on there, and you can listen live. For some reason, the video is not being fed through, and I apologize if you are over there trying to watch. You can only listen but not watch, and I'm sorry about that. I'll have to figure out what went wrong. Everything else came up fine. And still proud to say, still banned from YouTube. I just double-checked, and they're not allowing the video to go up onto YouTube. Mm, They got the original page knocked down, and now we're banned on YouTube a second time. Hey, badge of honor. What do you expect? (laughs) Well, want to welcome everyone that's in the chat room here on uh, Blog Talk Radio as well as over over on Facebook, because we do have that up live, and I'll try to be going back and forth between the two. And those that are listening in our studio with us, especially our dear friend, Sweet Sue, uh, good afternoon. I hope everyone had a blessed and happy, healthy Easter. And I'm out of breath, Curtis. Okay, you take over. I'm done. That's it. I'm I'm, I'm going for the day. I'm going to take my nap now, Curtis. (laughs) Hey, the way I see this is a great day because um, our guests of all, but every time I reach a Friday, I feel like I'm drawing closer to the 24 election. So <laughs> I look forward to our Fridays to hear people yep. and express their views on the future of this country and in our political situation here in the United States of the USSR. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a lot to talk about and a lot to cover. A lot has been going on. And I'm telling you, I thought the media circus had hit full-blown under the Obama administration. Uh, But what has happened here under this administration, uh, it it, it takes it to a whole other level of absurdity. And we can even talk about that 21-year-old National Guard uh, member that leaked classified information that he should never have had access to and it has made the United States of America the laughing stock of the world when you have a little teenage boy post what this guy snuck out of the National Guard post I mean it's 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 crazy it, this is absolutely crazy. And then the Biden administration just flustered off. Oh, yeah, like that weather balloon that yeah. they finally exploded over <clears throat> the Atlantic Ocean because they were afraid of someone getting hurt. It's a freaking balloon, you idiots. You pop it. Yeah. No, it's all no, about no, no. We- damage control for them. All about damage control. And to wait, one way to do that is to um, make it sound like a non-event. But, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But heaven forbid Trump pays off a porn star to keep her trap shut. That's a major crime worthy of sending him to more jail time than this National Guard member will face for sneaking out classified documents from a military installation. No, no. If you pay off a porn star and you face 13 years in jail, you steal classified information and then commit treason by posting it so that our foreign enemies have access to it and you get a slap on the wrist. Go figure. Go figure. Anyway, well, the, Curtis, the, we got to The thing tell- is, what he, I was just mad that what he did wasn't crime. It was personal. And matter of fact, it was his attorney that uh, um, paid the woman off. And there's um, documents saying that she she professed she never had a relationship with him. And, and mm-hmm. we'll throw it back to the left that, hey, when it came to Clinton, oh, that's no matter. It has nothing to do with the presidency. I'm going to throw that right back at no. them. Yep, yep, yep. Well, anyway, we've got ourselves a lot going on on this show. Uh, we already have people lined up for uh, next week and everything else. Um, whoops, I'm just messing up everything I'm doing here, Annie. What the hell are you doing on this thing? All right, here we go. Anyway, um, we have Raina Zittelman. Uh, he's the author of In Defense of Capitalism, a very interesting book and very interesting topics, seeing the way our education system and our woke society is going socialist. Uh, it would be very interesting to speak with him. Uh, we have Dave Gentry. He's the CEO of Red Chip Companies, and he also has his own podcast called Small Stocks, Big Money. Um, He's going to be talking about our economy. And are we heading for full inflation? We'll get the answer from the horse's mouth. And we have coming back, Murray Sabrine. And actually, I just looked. I misspelled his name. Shame on me. Uh, He's the author of From Emigrant to Public Intellectual and American Story. Uh, But we're going to be talking to him about other subjects uh, in there. And then, of course, we have Heritage Foundation, Brenda Hafera. She's Assistant Director and Senior Policy Analyst at the Heritage Foundation's Simon Center for American Studies. Oh, wow. We've got, we got a lot going on. <laughs> a lot going on. That's a mouthful. And it, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And Doc posted that the FBI has been going undercover in churches, especially the Roman Catholic Church. How dare you be pro-life and faith-based? Oh, Yeah. A lot of these churches are being infiltrated because we as Christians are the terrorists. And you notice how they put the National Guardsmen as uh, Christian-loving, uh, gun-loving, uh, car-race-loving. Doesn't that sound like an average red-blooded American kid? You know, God, guns, and guts. <laughs> what are you trying yeah. to make us? A, a nation of wimps. Oops, wait a minute. I just answered my own question. Yes, they want a nation of wimps. Well, yeah. that's, what they're, that's, that's what they're getting. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, well we've I got a lot to say, talk about. I, bet they come at, I was going to say that Go ahead. they're going to come at Jack Douglas, which is his name, um, with the full might of um, our justice system, you know, to prove a point while um, people like Hillary and Bill get away with um, 
perhaps murder even, when I think of Vince Foster. Where's the investigation? Oh. I don't know. Oh, speaking of murder, for those that were following the Alex Murdoch uh, murder trial of his son and wife, things are heating up down here. They drained the pond at the Moselle Estate. And guess what they found? Several vehicles were in that pond, lake, whatever you want to call it, and all tied to cold case files. It's heating up down here, folks. It ain't over. The fat lady has not sung yet. It's getting deeper and deeper. That said, um, those that listen to the show know that we truly do start each and every show off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication, there's not a lot of information because it is recent. uh, And for whatever reason, a lot there's an investigation still ongoing. uh, But it's going out to two uh, heroes, Sergeant David Poirier and Corporal Scotty Canizero of the Baton Rouge Police Department in Louisiana. Their end of watch was Sunday, March 26th of this year. And this is from WAFB.com, written by Gray Media. And it reads, Two Baton Rouge Police Department pilots were killed after a BRPP, I'm sorry, BRPD helicopter crashed in West Baton Rouge Parish early on Sunday morning of March 26th, and the department has confirmed. The helicopter belonged to the Baton Rouge Police Department. And officials stated, today is a very emotional day for the men and women of the Baton Rouge Police Department, said Chief Murphy Paul. Right now, we're asking the community to lift up our officers in prayer. Law enforcement officers escorted the bodies of the two Baton Rouge police officers killed in a helicopter crash, and officials provided a few more details. According to the Federal Aviation Administration, The helicopter was a Robinson R-44 helicopter and went down around 3 a.m. The wreckage was located in a sugarcane field along the North Winterville Road off US-190 near Port Allen. I just heard a loud boom around 2.30 a.m. or quarter to 3 this morning, said one neighbor, who asked not to be identified. Sounded like an explosion. The coroner's office was called to the scene around 11 a.m. Sources said the helicopter crew had been sent to assist with a pursuit around 2 a.m. Sunday, but never returned. It appears no one was aware that the chopper had gone down for many hours. A search was eventually launched, and the wreckage was found hours later. Airport officials said most flight missions are done at low altitude. The airport confirmed that most of the time, flights will check in with the air traffic control tower at takeoff and then return at a time when the tower is closed. As a result, the airport said the BRPD helicopter potentially had no check-ins with the air traffic control tower. The FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board have launched an investigation. According to the FAA, the NTSB will be in charge of the investigation. Baton Rouge police said the scene of the crash is secure. We're asking the community to be respectful of the investigative process because it takes time 
so that we can release all of the facts related to this incident to the family as well as to the community, added Chief Paul. The Baton Rouge Police Department identified the victims as Corporal Scotty Canazero and Sergeant David Poirier on that Monday afternoon. And this is from also WAFB, and it's from their staff. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards said their heroism, sacrifice, and devotions to public service will never be forgotten. The governor asked the state to join him in praying for their families. In 2019, both men were recognized as the department's Officers of the Month. At the time those awards were given, the department said both men are licensed helicopter pilots and trained tactical flight officers who patrol the skies at Baton Rouge on a nightly basis. They insist uniformed patrol officers in their daily activities and play a major role in capturing fleeing suspects during active pursuits. Baton Rouge Police Officer Sergeant David Poirier, 47, and Corporal Scotty Canazero, 38, died in the helicopter crash that morning in the Port Allen area. Sergeant David Poirier is a 17-year BRPD veteran who was currently assigned to the air support unit. Corporal Scotty Canazero is a 16-year BRPD veteran who was also assigned to the air support unit. Flags had been lowered to half-staff to honor the life and legacy of both officers at the Baton Rouge Police Department's headquarters. The public was asked to continue to lift up the family and loved ones of our fallen officers up in prayer during this very difficult time. The men were in a chopper assisting with the vehicle pursuit that morning when the chase entered another parish. The pilots were eventually called off the pursuit. Their aircraft crashed as they were flying back to Baton Rouge. The Federal Aviation Administration released a preliminary cause of the crash. They said the aircraft tail rotor struck a tree and crashed inverted in a field. The investigation into the crash continues, and they will determine if the aircraft had any mechanical or other issues that contributed to the crash. Porio was promoted earlier this month. He made headlines in March of 2022 when he and another officer were in a BRPD helicopter and spotted a missing baby from the air. The eight-month-old was in a wooded area off of Hooper Road. He worked for the Denham Springs Police Department from 1999 to 2006. In 2002, he was named Officer of the Year by that department. Current Denham Springs Police Chief Rodney Walker said he was hired around the same time as Poirier, and the two worked frequently together. He was a highly valued employee here, Walker said. He was a high-energy, motivated employee, and he did a lot of proactive police work. At the time of his award in 2022, then Springs Police Chief Jeff Wesley said Poirier had distinguished himself as a true professional. Prior to being hired in Didham Springs, he worked for the Springfield Police Department and the Tangafolia Police Parish. Corporal Canizero frequently visited places like schools and daycare centers to show young people his police helicopter and explain the workings of the BRPD Air Patrol Division. 
Carla Cormia of the Community Haven in Central said Canazero visited their facility last summer, and by the time he left, every child there wanted to be a pilot. All of the kids were in awe, Cormier said. They were just super excited to see him. She said Canazero was supposed to visit the facility again in a few weeks to go swimming with the children. It's going to be hard to know that Pilot Scotty is not coming back. And finally, from Officer.com. In the moments before last month's deadly crash, a Baton Rouge police helicopter erratically changed speed, altitude, and direction before plummeting into a nearby field, federal investigators said in a report released. The findings confirm a story told by publicly available flight data, which suggests something went wrong before the aircraft crashed, killing both officers on board. Veteran officers Sergeant David Poirier and Corporal Scotty Canizaro died when the helicopter they were piloting in pursuit of a hit-and-run suspect went down near Irwinville in West Baton Parish. In its preliminary report, the NTSB confirmed that the pair radio dispatch and ground units that they were joining the chase and had been requesting updates on the suspect's vehicle's movement and location before going silent around the time the chase was called off. At that time, data shows the helicopter executed a shallow left deviation to the south of Highway 190 before turning left again, at which point the aircraft's turn rate increased before undergoing a series of turns and altitude changes, the report says. Despite the fact that BRPD called off the pursuit around 2.35 a.m., the FAA's report showed the helicopter crashed shortly after. The West Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office was only alerted to the incident around 11 a.m. after the family of one of the pilots requested a search. According to the NTSB report, the family reported that the officer had not returned home after they noticed his cell phone was sending signals from a remote area in West Baton Rouge. BRPD spokesman Sergeant Lejeune McKinley has said that the department is conducting its own investigation into what occurred, adding that the agency is working with the Baton Rouge Airport and the Federal Aviation Administration to determine why there was such a lapse in time before BRPD was made aware of the crash. The department said it grounded night flights while investigating. After the incident, the FAA initially determined that the helicopter's tail rotor hit a tree, causing it to crash upside down. However, the agency revised its preliminary report days later to say the cause of the crash was unknown. Available flight data using FlightAware which maps an aircraft's movements every 15 to 20 seconds, showed that the helicopter ascended sharply and seesawed in speed during its final moments. The NTSB's report confirms the helicopter's chaotic ascent using data from a more precise onboard device called an Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, or ADS-B, 
The ADS-B broadcasts information every second to ground stations and other aircraft. That is aircraft's GPS location, altitude, and ground speed. The speed of an aircraft relative to the surface of the Earth. Several pilots told the advocate, it's impossible to know what went wrong until the federal investigation is complete. But they said the sharp changes in speed and altitude could have resulted from a mechanical failure or clouds causing the pilot to become disoriented. As part of their separate ongoing investigations, the FAA and NTSB will study data from an onboard flight tracker that broadcasts and records information about our aircraft's location, altitude, and ground speed every second. The investigation will also study wreckage that was removed from the scene. And in my own words, daily law enforcement officers make split-second decisions under extreme duress that have life-changing consequences. No one can know the thoughts, stress, fears, and prayers these two heroes experienced. Yet they, till their final moments, continue to defend, to serve, and protect. So Sergeant Borier and Corporal Cannon, you are end of tour. Job well done. We'll take it from here. Today's show is dedicated to these two heroes. It's also dedicated to all of the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be the law enforcement, firefighters, emergency services. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. We dedicate to them this song, this piano piece, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one.
And we're back. You're here live, listening to Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, iTunes, iHeart. I can't even say YouTube anymore since I'm banned again. Facebook, Stitcher, Spreaker, and half a dozen other places. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle. The video is down on my homepage, which I'm working to get back up and not having much luck, but I will have it back up next show. But you still can listen to the audio by going to our webpage, Southern Sense, just put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Wow. Now, that is a mouthful. Now, I don't know if is. this is our guest here. It is? Okay, great. And he's early, calling in from Germany, and welcome to the show. Uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce his last name, and considering that's embarrassing because I'm half German. <laughs> Rainer Zittelman. Did I say that correctly, sir? Um, for the United States, I decided Seidelman because I think it's easier to pronounce. <laughs> well, I apologize. <laughs> no, I, no, I, not to so pronounce it. It's the Italian. <laughs> you pronounce it more correctly than the other ones, but I think for most of Americans, Seidelman sounds better or easier to pronounce. <laughs> It is, it is, it is. And I, I have to say, you know, considering that I used to work in Bushwick, Williamsburg with the Hasidic, um, I should be better at pronouncing German names than I am. As a matter of fact, my grandparents are probably rolling in the, gra- in the grave going, you can't say that, but you can say von Koenig, our name. <laughs> so, yes. Ah, okay. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, you're, you have a great book, at which I have to apologize. I got you as a guest last minute, so I have not had a chance to read your book, so I will read it, and I will have you back on it, In Defense of Capitalism. And what a title to be dealing with in today's woke society. Now, we've seen the change of push towards socialism uh, back in the 60s and 70s with the extremism in colleges, but it has become so rampant that you can't escape it. So how do we defend capitalism when we're having so many assaults against us? A perfect example is the Budweiser spokesperson. Absolutely. I, I can't agree anymore. And first I have to tell you bad news and then good news. The bad news is a couple of weeks ago, the new index of economic freedom was published by the Heritage Foundation in the United States. They publish it every year. This is a ranking uh, how economically free countries are all over the world. At the top of the list are countries like Switzerland or Singapore, at the bottom like Cuba, Venezuela, or North Korea. And now the bad news. The United States has the worst ranking ever since they created the index in 1995. And what's more, even ridiculous, now 16 European countries, according to this index, are more economically free than the United States. And don't misunderstand me, European countries are not economically free. On the contrary, we have a lot of socialism here. But if, according to this index, even 16 European countries are more economically free than the United States, then you see how far this uh, big government and uh, anti-capitalism is in the United States. This is the bad news. The good news is I think there are a lot of people in the United States who disagree, who don't want to abolish capitalism. And I can prove it. For my book, I commissioned a poll from, with one of the most prestigious polling institutes in the world, Ipsos Mori. In the meantime, we had this poll in 34 
countries all over the world. We, we asked people 34 questions to find out what do they think about the market economy, what do they think about capitalism. And the great result is from 34 countries, only in one country, the population was more pro-capitalism in the United States, only one country. 32 countries were uh, less pro-capitalist or most of them anti-capitalist. So this is bad and good news at the same time. Okay. Now, we can say it's bad news when I think of how many are now rejecting the idea of that shining city on the hill that we represent, freedom, free market economy. I mean, when you think about capitalism, that was originally created as a slur against free market economy to make it sound bad, but we were able to pick up that mantle and run with it. So you have things like TikTok that are now using artificial intelligence to funnel you into a certain mindset, taking away your want for the free market economy, the want of those freedoms. So when I hear more and more countries are turning away from us as a shining city on the hill, it makes me worry. Should I really be worried or should I be happy? You mean with the thing about TikTok? I'm, I'm not quite sure. There, I'm, to be honest, I'm a little bit split. So on the one hand, I, I'm not a friend that government should forbid companies or to be too much involved, and I don't know how much is about only about competition or protectionism. But on the other hand, of course, it's Chinese, and you, you can't trust them. They, 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 they use it maybe to get data from people in the United States. Of course, they say they don't do. But so to be honest about this topic, I haven't a, a clear opinion. But what I have a very clear opinion is that we in Europe, and I think always also in the United States, we go in absolutely wrong direction in the direction of more and more a planned economy. This is what Joe Biden does in the United States with his so-called Green New Deal, spending hundreds and hundreds of billions. And uh, we, we did it in Germany. And do, do we see the result now? We did it. You, you should look what we have done. We started with this crazy energy policy in Germany. There was an article in, in Wall Street Journal some years ago with the headline, the dumbest po energy policy in the world. This was about Germany. And now the result, I have seen the statistic today, we have the highest prices for electricity in the whole world. Some companies from Germany, like BSF, what is the biggest chemical uh, company in the world, they go now to China with a part, others go to the United States. And this is what happens if you abolish free market economy. You know, what, what we did here were crazy things. First, phased out nuclear power plants. Then we started to phase out coal power plants. Then we forbid fracking. Now we import fracking gas from the United States and made us dependent on Russian gas. Very crazy, typical for a planned economy. It doesn't work. And, you know, I'm a historian, and this is a lesson from history. In the last 100 years, they tried planned economy systems 25 times and it failed time and again there's not a single example where socialism or planned economy made lives better for people and never planned economy solved any problem now they tell us oh we need something like a planned economy to to 
solve the problem, uh, environmental problems or problems with climate change. This is crazy. You know, I live in I live in Germany here, and we had this experiment with socialism in East Germany, capitalism in West Germany, and the environment was worse in East Germany, much worse. The CO2 emissions were three times higher in East Germany than they were in West Germany, and the environmental standards were the worst in the Soviet Union. So planned economy caused always a lot of problems in history, especially with the environment, and never solved any problem. I think uh, we can only solve problems with more, we need much more capitalism and not less capitalism. This is the message of my book. <laughs> it's a very good message and a powerful message. And we have a whole generation rising up. Uh, they're seeing what their older brothers and sisters or those that went before them are doing with socialism. And they're saying, wait a minute, I, I, I have hope for the youth coming up behind, because in a way, this pandemic might have been a gift, because now parents are seeing what are being taught to their kids, and they're saying, wait a minute, we're going in the wrong direction. Let's teach these kids independence and self-reliance. And those are two important things in a free market economy. And that's what's missing in socialism. I agree, absolutely. And when you speak about the the children and about students this is a big problem with the universities uh, in europe and in the united states because teachers tell them a lot of the evils of capitalists but they don't tell them anything about socialism you know i'm older now i'm 65 i can remember what socialism means but someone who's now 30 years old he uh, he, he he never lived in a in a world with socialist countries. You can only know it from, from school or from textbooks, but teachers don't tell them at school. I, I give you one example. In the end of the 50s, there was in China, the biggest socialist experiment in history. Mao called it the Great Leap Forward. 45 million people died. I have a chapter in my book about this. 45 million people died. This was the biggest socialist experiment in history. And I have lectures all over the world, in Asia, in Latin America, United States, and in Europe. And everywhere where I speak, I ask people, have you heard at school about this biggest socialist experiment where 45 million people died? The teachers tell you, and only very few people have heard about it. I think this is, uh, this is a big problem, that uh, they don't know much about history. This is why I wrote this book. To be honest, I don't believe that I can convince anti-capitalists with this book because they will not read this book. They will not buy this book. I know it. They prefer to buy a book like I, I bought it now uh, a few weeks ago, the new book from Bernie Sanders. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. They will read this book, not mine. <laughs> I wrote this book for people like you, or hopefully a lot of people in our audience, who are pro-free market economy, pro-entrepreneurship, anti-socialism, to provide you with all the arguments that you need if you have a discussion with anti-capitalists. I can guarantee you that you can win every discussion. We'll find it in the book. It's based on science. You know, I have two PhDs in history and sociology. You find 900 footnotes in the book. It's all, you know, uh, 360 books in the biography, but it's written in a very easy-to-read way. Everyone who can understand now this interview, in spite of my German accent, 
can understand this book. And it will, it, it will provide you with all the arguments that you need if you have any discussion. And let's, let's add something to this book about Bernie Sanders because I mentioned it. This is so crazy. There's one chapter and he says, um, there should be zero billionaires in the United States. We should abolish billionaires totally. But do you know what it means? Zero billionaires, it's only in Cuba, it's in North Korea, and in the poorest African countries. So my question to Bernie Sanders is, would you like to make from the United States a country like Cuba or like North Korea or like the poorest African countries? Because these are the only countries without billionaires. Some years ago, he told us about so-called Scandinavian Nordic socialism in Sweden because he knows nothing about these countries. He knows nothing about history. If you would know more about it, Sweden is in this index of economic freedom in the Heritage Foundation now at rank 10. United States is only page 25. And the share of billionaires in the population is 60% higher even in Sweden than in the United States just to population. So uh, I mean, really, if he, if he has this idea to abolish all billionaires, it means to make a very, very poor country from the United States. You know, I admire the United States. I'm very often uh, there. I love the United States. And they, they became the greatest country ever. Why? Because people worked hard and because of a good economic system, because of capitalism. And I think Americans shouldn't forget what made America great their hard work, and capitalism. That's true. Now, we do have someone that wants to ask you a question. He's a friend of the show, so I know it's definitely not a troll. But i got to tell you, my late husband, their family fled uh, Latvia after World War II. He was born in a displaced persons camp in Augsburg, Germany. Uh, my current fiancé, their family fled uh, Castro's Cuba right after the fall of Cuba. So I, I, I have lived this all my life because my grandparents, both fled Germany and Italy and then served in the U.S. Army. Uh, so these are things that you know, I grew up with. There's not a single part of my DNA that is not conservative. I was born that way. <laughs> so I, I have, if anyone has embraced, it is, has been myself uh, and my parents. So God bless you showing everyone else what they failed to see so let me bring in our friend to the show his name is panky so let's uh i, I always do this to you i'm sorry <laughs> but welcome on to the show and ask yeah, our guest. Close. Uh, <laughs> i always yeah, mess it up so, we've known each other for I years wanna, so go ahead <laughs> yeah you know um, i think with the average person on the term of free markets a free market because of the United States Commercial Code is for free markets between states. But when you're trading internationally, you want to have fair trade. Your markets just can't be open to goods coming from another part of the world if they're using slave labor. Because then the prices, well, they would undercut American-produced goods who have what we call minimum wage, and it would just be havoc. So I think what we want is fair trade with goods coming into the country, and if those goods are so undercut because of whatever reason, then they have to put tariffs on them in order to bring them up where they are level with what's produced in the United States so you don't put American industries out of business. So uh, to be honest, I'm 
pro-free trade, I'm against protectionism, but of course, on the other hand, you're right, it should be fair trade and it's a question of negotiation from politicians and they should negotiate with countries like China that it's really fair trade. And of course, this is a precondition because otherwise it's not free trade. So in this way, I, I agree. But I'm against protectionism, but I'm for, uh, I'm for a government that makes a good agreements that are really fair and not uh, in the disadvantage of the United States in the end. Yeah, and especially like in steel. I was in the steel erection, steel erection business, and I knew that Russian plate steel coming to the United States would, was putting American businesses like Granite City Steel, they couldn't compete. You had the same thing with timber. A lumber coming out of Canada was undercutting the lumber in Georgia to the point where softwood industry in Georgia just went, just they mothballed it. But with the last president, with Trump, Trump put tariffs on lumber coming out of Canada, whereas those lumber mills in Georgia, the state of Georgia, were able to come back on board. You had steel mills in Granite City, Illinois, right across from St. Louis. They was able to fire back up their furnaces. And that was, look at the aluminum companies that started back up in uh, Kentucky. So I think that we have to protect American markets, and we work interstate, free trade, fair trade when it's coming from every place else. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. All right. Uh, I do have intelligent listeners. I got to tell you that. You know, there's a lot to say with trying to balance the trade. Um, there is a lot of mistakes that our government has made, and I'll do, use the F-35 as a perfect example, where we had parts being made for the F-35 that, in the end, the Chinese were able to corrupt the parts where pilots were passing out in the cockpit. So when we trade with an enemy, we have to be aware that we leave ourselves an upper hand and not put ourselves, our national security and our people in jeopardy. Yes, but I think more important is make America again more economically free. Because if, it, if America is economically free, it will be the strongest power in the world by far. And it will remain the strongest power. It's, it's really easy. The more economically free a country is, the, the stronger it will be. Look, we, if we speak about China, they were such a poor country. Even in 1981, 88% of the Chinese population lived in extreme poverty, 88%. But they are smart in China. Then with Deng Xiaoping, they started economic reforms, pro-market reforms. They introduced private property. And so they became so powerful that they understood that more market is necessary to make a nation stronger. Uh, now they go back in the direction of our state in China. This is another story. But the reason why they became so strong is because they introduced small free market. Another example, in Vietnam. I've been in Vietnam. In 1990, it was the poorest country in the world, even poorer than African countries. Then they started pro-market reforms, introduced private property. They call themselves communist, socialist, but I can guarantee you one thing, it's harder to find a Marxist in Vietnam University than in the United States or in Europe. And now they have this economic growth and more free market it's always good for a country. And it's very easy. You know, I'm a big admirer of Ronald Reagan. For me, he was, you know, 
I, 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 I really, he did, I think he did so much good for the United States. And what did he? Lower taxes, lowered regulation. And so this was the beginning of very good years for the United States. And I think the United States should go back to politics like you need. I, I wish it to you and to the whole world another Ronald Reagan for the United States. Ah, from your lips to God's ears. Well, one of the things you talk about, you know, planned economy, and this is something our federal government has been doing, and they've been doing it, uh, more encroachment to the point where our farming industry is in jeopardy, and they're paying farmers to not grow crops. You want to have food on the table for everyone, affordable food, good quality food, because right now we're getting more food out from outside shipped in than where in the past we produced enough where we didn't need to take imports. But we've reversed that, and the federal government is now subsidizing industries that once prospered, and instead they're killing yes, them. Uh, so, uh, 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 these, these are always the results if you to have too much influence of the government. You, of, of course, you see it in agriculture, you see it in the energy policy, you see it everywhere. And so I think this Green New Deal by Joe Biden. It's only a new word or another word for planned economy. And, you know, if we remember, I, I know uh, Joe Biden, he, he's a big admirer of, of Roosevelt. But what maybe a lot of people don't know, uh, the taxes at this time in the United States were up to 91%. So 91%. Do we want to go back to such a system? Because this is what planned economy means in the end. More regulation, higher taxes, more poverty for the people. This is the experience from the last 100 years. More economic freedom freedom means more prosperity for a country. Well, another thing our government has been doing is that when someone does come up with a new idea, a new product, uh, a new item, it's so overregulated in the industry that it's impossible to bring it to the market. The drug industry is a perfect uh, example of that, where we could bring things to the market and save lives faster. But the approval process, unless it's the COVID vaccine, uh, is so arduous that when the product does come out, it's so expensive, few people can afford it. Uh, we need to cut back on these regulations, which Trump was attempting to do. We're regulating uh, ourselves out of existence. Yes. Yes, and, and I think this is something I I'm, I'm, I'm don't agree with everything with Donald Trump, but he did, he did definitely two very good things. He lowered taxes, this was very good, and he got rid of a lot of regulation. And I know that it's a, with this, all this regulation, it's a nightmare. I, uh, you know, I'm a customer, for example, of, of banks in the United States, and there's so much bureaucracy. I, I always thought... The, the biggest bureaucracy in the world is in Germany, and we have a crazy bureaucracy. But uh, I thinking this when I when I started to have this bank account in the United States, and I had such a terrible experience. How complicated! And it's not the fault of the bankers, but they can't do. Everything is so much regulated, and it's not only with this. You need permission for 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 everything. Uh, even uh, a hair cutter, for example, needs something. I heard this like uh, a certificate. Uh, there, there, there's a regulation he has to make expensive courses to, 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 to cut or even to wash hairs of someone else. 
Isn't it crazy? We do it every day and we don't need any education how to wash our hair. <laughs> and they have to get a certificate for this, I think, in New York City wow. and spend a lot of money to learn this. This is so absolutely ridiculous and so crazy. And the same with the financial industry. You know, one story I, I talk about in my book is um, the regulation of the finance industry because mainstream media, they tell us always, that the financial crisis of 2008, that this was a result of deregulation and all this stuff, that there were not, was not enough regulation. But this is absolutely wrong. I have here some, some facts, uh, for example, that I have in, in my book, you know, about this, this legend uh, like it has that the 2008 financial crisis was caused by radical deregulation. In fact, of the 28 different measures introduced to either regulate or deregulate in the financial industry in the years 1980 to 2009. Um, only five actually cut regulation. The other 23 created additional regulation. And, and another fact, th there was nothing like laissez-faire capitalism in the financial markets. Immediately before the financial crisis, I have this number in my book, 12,190 people were working full-time on regulation, the financial market in Washington, D.C. alone, five times as many as 1960. So these are crazy stories that they tell us there's, there's, there should be more regulation, more regulation. If it would be like this way, the more government, the more regulation, the better it is for economy, then the Soviet Union or East Germany would have been the most efficient economies in the world. And maybe I can add something. I have something for people to listen to us. I, I produced a film and I'm very proud about it because I got an award at the last Freedom Fest in Las Vegas for best short movie. And the, you can get it for free on the internet behind the Berlin Wall. If you Google it, Life Behind the Berlin Wall, it's only 17 minutes, but it's especially good for young people. I compare East and West Germany because you know, this is the same country, the same culture, the same language, the same history, only different economic systems, planned economy against free market economy. And now maybe I ask you one thing most people do not know, so I think you, you will not know, but maybe you know. Do you know how long did you have to wait to get a car in socialist East Germany? What do you guess? Oh, in socialist East Germany, last I heard was somewhere between 9 to 12 years. You are almost correct, but the shortest time was 12 and a half years, and the longest time was 17 years. So it was between 12 and a half and 17 years to get a car. And what did you get in the end? The worst car in the world, the so-called crappy. The car <laughs> Russian East <Hill>. Germany. <laughs> yes, they were, they were famous for producing the worst cars in the world, uh, by, by the way, very, very bad for the environment. And and at the same time, in West Germany, you could go, like in the United States, to every store, if you have enough money, buy a car and not uh, such a bad trophy by the Mercedes or Volkswagen or BMW, and go away with this. Or another fact, only 16% in 1989 had a telephone. In West Germany, 99%. And even 27% had to share their toilet with other people, if you lived in multi-family house, you had to go outside your apartment to share the toilet with other people. This was true for 27%, while in West Germany, everyone had their own toilet. 
like uh, in the United States. And these are some facts you can see in this film, Life Behind the Berlin Wall. And a lot of other facts are in my book, In Defense of Capitalism. And uh, I hope a lot of people will read it because we, we all need now very urgently to defend capitalists. This is a problem. The anti-capitalists are very loud and they make a lot of noise, but, but there's a majority, I believe it, of people in the United States who don't want socialism, who believe in free market economy, but in a way they are silent. And so it's very good that there is a radio show like yours, uh, someone who is pro-market, and I think, I know there are a lot of other radio shows in the United States, and so I hope that we will go now to defend capitalism altogether. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, uh, when I went to college, I graduated with a degree in business administration, and um, I took a marketing course. Uh, matter of fact, a lot of the courses I took, I ended up selling the book books back to the bookstore, still in their cellophane cover. But I went Phi Theta Kappa. <laughs> The marketing professor told me if I didn't show up the very last day of class, he's not going to give me the A+, plus, you know, the 4.0. He's going to fail me if I didn't show up the last day. So I'm sorry. Oh. I told you this is entrenched in my blood. Entrenched in my blood. Uh, yeah, I, I, can sell, I can sell buttons off your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, I have a T-shirt. You know what is on this T-shirt? I love capitalism. Yes, and sometimes I have interviews and people ask me, why do we have this T-shirt? I love capitalism. It's crazy. And sometimes, you know, I have TV interviews only 15 seconds time for an answer. And then I tell them one thing. What a lot of people don't know, before capitalism, 200 years ago, 90% of the worldwide population lived in extreme poverty. 90%. Today, it's less mm -hmm. than 10%. And half of this reduction happened over the last decades. Isn't it a great story? This happened never before. And so uh, some people think capitalism is only good for the rich people. No, capitalism is much more important for the poor people because it's the only way in history to fight against poverty. Yeah, exactly. I have a question. Exactly. <clears throat> Go ahead, Curtis. This is my co-host, Curtis. Hi. Yes. The United States and... Um Europe, and the rest of the world pretty much, we have a, a four-year track record of Trump and um, how he's dealt with the uh, free market system here in the United States. What do Europeans know, or how do they feel about Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, and a possible presidency of his, and would that be good for the economy? I don't I, I know something, and I, I was now two times in the United States, and I spoke with a lot of Donald Trump fans. I spoke also with some DeSantis fans. I think that DeSantis is absolutely pro-free market, and I think he would really be good for the United States. But also Trump did some very good things. I spoke about it. He lowered taxes. He got rid of a lot of regulation and the economy before uh, the outbreak of uh, corona was very, very good in the United States. So this is also true. And so the only thing that I hope that we will not get another four years with Joe Biden. 
<laughs> oh, please, you're giving me nightmares now. You're giving me nightmares. You never know. Do you think he will run for president one more time? There are, he, I think he said it some uh, days ago that, that he thinks about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, but I, I feel a red tidal wave coming across the United States. It's not going to happen because the Democrats don't want him. And the worst part is they're putting up what I call gruesome Newsom, Gavin Newsom, the governor of of California, and that's who they're, oh, they're he's, trying to put up as their front runner. This, this he's Biden I, I, I think uh, I, I, I call him the handsome version of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Is it correct? If that's possible, as I said, the handsome brush of Bernie Sanders. He has the same ideology. He only looks better, and this makes him more dangerous than Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, I think he doesn't yes. look good, and he's he's old, and he had a heart attack and all this. He's young, he's dynamic, he's charismatic, but I think he's a, he's very socialist. Do you don't you think so? Yes, he is. Absolutely. If you shut, shut down trucking going into your state simply because they don't adhere to your regulations within your state, you have cut off the free market economy going in and out of your state. You, that is what he did at the height of the pandemic. And then we had the port backlogs. This was all his doing. He, he allowed the truckers with a truck that's 10 years old to still come into the port, load up and travel through the rest of the United States to deliver the goods. We wouldn't have had that huge back background, uh, backup, I mean. Um, but this is the policies that Gruesome Newsom has put in there. Uh, he's also turned around and said, if you're an independent contractor, say, for example, you're a scriptwriter or you're a lyricist and you work, say, for a studio, you are now considered an employee of that studio. No, I'm an independent contractor. I don't want to have to be bound by their regulations and rules and everything else, but he has destroyed the entire independent individual out there, an independent contractor, destroyed it. And it has been destroying the economy of California. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and and even they have anyway so high taxes in California. You know, I I have this, I have to, I own two apartments in in, in Manhattan. And I know how, it's incredible. People in Germany, they think the United States is a paradise for low taxes, Maybe it's true in uh, in Texas or in, in Florida, but but uh, not in California and not in New York. And they don't understand that even people leave this, uh, they they go where lower taxes and more sun. In a way, I like New York City, but what I don't like is the weather, and what I don't like is the high taxes there, especially. And you can change the weather, but you can change the taxes. And the unfortunate thing is once a tax goes in, it almost never, ever, ever disappears. The same thing with a government agency. Once it gets into place, it never, ever, ever disappears. We still have agencies that were put into place during the Civil War that still exist that we don't need. But bodies fill those jobs, and we pay our taxes to pay for people doing absolutely nothing Unless they're, they're creating new regulations and probably laughing over their martinis as they come up with the craziest regulation possible to put it into place. Perfect example, I don't know if you caught this story that was in the Epic Times uh, just yesterday, that an Amish, Amish farmer who does traditional farming, highly organic, very green. If you, you support green, this guy couldn't be any greener. 
But the USDA has been going after them because he's not using a USDA meat facility to process his meats, or he's not doing what everyone else is with chemical pesticides and everything. He's doing clean farming, and yet they go after a guy doing exactly what they're preaching, but they don't want you to actually do because it doesn't follow their regulations and whatever fines and fees they charge. That crazy? And, and uh, yeah, this is a perfect example. I, we have, uh, by the way, the same here in Germany. I spoke with a farmer here in Germany, and he said, "I will leave Germany because I hate it. These politicians, they don't understand anything about agriculture. Nothing. Never. They were never a farmer in their life, but they make all new laws, new laws, new laws for environment or against climate change or whatsoever." But they don't understand anything about it. They, they think there are – this is the problem with socialists. They think that politicians or government officials are smarter than consumer, farmers, or entrepreneurs. But they are not. And this is a big problem. And this is the difference between planned economy and free market capitalism. In, in capitalism, it is democracy because people decide what to produce, how to produce, and um, in the end, the consumer decides. So this is pure democracy. And in the planned economy, politicians decide, or in the end, uh, the con- uh, uh, or government of the officials decide. For example, four weeks ago now, in, Ch- in Europe, they forbid combustion engines from t- 2035 on. It's not allowed to buy a new car with a combustion engine. But we, they want everything with electric vehicles. I have nothing against it, but it should be consumer's choice what car to drive. And we don't have the infrastructure here for loading all these uh, electric vehicles. We don't have it. They, uh, but they, they forbid it because they think always the government is smarter than, for example, the farmers or the entrepreneurs. And this is the wrong philosophy. It is. It is, absolutely. Um, I do have to take a break. Curtis, can you take over for a second? And I've got a little sure. minor emergency here. Just oh, sure. I'll Most be right certainly. back. Curtis, take over. Okay. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you visited the United States? Now, three weeks ago. I've been in Washington, D.C. I've been in New York. I'm in Boston. And before this, I, I'm, I'm very often there. Uh, Okay, because it's been a while since I've been to Germany myself. I used to be in the United States Navy. <clears throat> I used to visit a poor ah. city called Willishaven. <clears throat> where, where, where have you been in Ludwigshafen? Willishaven. That's on ah, the northern coast of um, Germany. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it's well, a, when have a you nice been quaint there? town. When have, you, when have you been there? Oh, God, this was like... Probably the last time I was there was in the 80s. I was on the um, warship, the USS Nimitz. On our... I, rem- I, I remember I had a lot of good friends from the American Army at the time. I lived near Frankfurt in the city of Darmstadt, and we had there a lot of uh, soldiers from U.S. Army, and I became uh, friends with them it, at this time. The dollar was worth a lot, so it was worth Oh, yeah. Uh, there, there was one... one one Deutschmark was like uh, um, 
uh, was uh, of five Deutschmarks was like one dollar or something like this. Today, yeah. uh, one, one, one euro is like one, one dollar. So, so this, yeah. things change like this. You see, when I, I, I started to apologize. There, there oh, was sorry, two Chris, Germanys I apologize. when I was born there. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, there was just, I have to apologize. Someone decided to try to make delivery. There is a sign on, on the door saying, on air, oh, don't okay. knock. <laughs> so yeah, I was just anything telling that can him go that, wrong, uh, will go wrong. I was just telling him that but, when yeah. I visited Germany, there were like two separate Germanys at the time. And I, you know, I just wanted him to, to note the difference now um, versus what it yeah, was before well, when it was East and West Germany. Well, I, I will make a, a, a notation because I used to own a travel agency back in 1970. I'll give my age, very close to yours. Um, but one of the things I noticed is that when you watch the currency fluctuate and travel patterns change, it is a very highly indicative of where the economy is going. Uh, I don't know if you also follow those trends, you know, where people travel for vacation or whether or not they even now take vacations, um, how the currency fluctuates between country to country. It's really telling on how the free market economy works in the United States compared to the rest of the world. Yes, but the problem is the, the, the dollar, in a way, is, is weak, but the euro is also very weak, and this is... Uh, because this is everywhere the crazy policy of central banks. They printed more money, more money, more money. And, you know, the reason for the financial crisis was too much debt, too much debt. And then they solved it with even more debt, with, with zero interest rates and all this stuff. And they thought this is the therapy against the crisis. But it's not now you see the results, the result that we have now, the inflation all over the world. And I think it was crystal clear before. You can't print money, money, always more money. And sooner or later, you have the inflation. First, you have the inflation with the asset prices, uh, like in the real estate market or the stock market. And then in the end, you have the inflation with consumer prices. And this is what happens right now. This is another big problem with the, with the central banks, with the Federal Reserve, and with the European Central Bank. I think it's crazy. I think they act like planning authorities in socialist countries. Well, at one point, for approximately 100 years here in the United States, when our currency was backed by gold and silver, you didn't see inflation. You didn't see price increases. If you bought, say, a dozen eggs at 10 cents, 80 years later, you're still buying a dozen eggs at 10 cents. What we did was, as you said, by centralizing the banks, and then thank you, Richard Nixon, for taking us off the gold standard and relying more on the Federal Reserve, we have devalued our dollar. But now, without the backing of the gold, and with what people forgot that we called quantitative easing, and we keep on – that term still exists, and they're still doing it by printing money to put into circulation without any backing to it. So now a dollar – is no longer worth a dollar. It's probably worth, I don't know, not even 70 cents, less. I don't know what today's value is compared to prior having it backed by gold. We're getting pennies yes, on the dollar. You see, now, even with the gold price, I think now we have the highest gold price since decades. So um, in, in dollar or in euros, we have the highest gold price. And uh, I, I bought some 
gold even 20 years ago, like for like an insurance. If we have a very very bad financial crisis, I think uh, it's uh, I I would invest all of my money and even not most of my money in gold. But I think everyone should have or own some gold as an insurance when very bad things happen. What you can never know with these crazy policies. I don't trust them, especially not the government and not the central banks. And if you print more money, I know this currency tax easing and all how they how they call it. These are only other words for printing your money. And and sooner or later there will be this problem. And now I'm I'm happy that I I have some gold as an uh, insurance. And even I bought some inflation-linked uh, 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 bonds also as insurance because I. Uh, I'm very scared about this. Uh, what uh, that that we will uh, can have a new financial crisis. You see now the, the the problems in the United States with some some banks. Some big banks make a lot of profit, as we heard before. But there are a lot of smaller b- banks that have big problems. In Europe, the same. Maybe you have heard it about this uh, uh, Credit Suisse in Switzerland, uh, the, the second largest right. bank right. that went almost in bankruptcy. So uh, I think it's it's really dangerous. <laughs> Rainer. Yeah, especially with now, I was going to say, just especially now with our our money, when we look at it, it's digital. It's not even actual currency anymore. You get numbers being switched into your bank accounts, and when you pay your bills, just numbers switch out. No longer are you using cash. Cash is no longer king. You're using actually digits. So when a bank goes belly up, the numbers just disappear off the page. And, oh, oh, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be backed by the FDIC? Oh, oh, Joe Biden wants to back everything up to whatever everyone lost, which we cannot afford to do. So it's become the gamble simply leaving your money in a bank account. Yep. I I want to um, expound on a, a question I was going to ask him before, really a statement. Um, and the reason why I brought up... Um, East and West Germany, because of the different economies. One was more capital or free market based, another one was more socialist. And and to me that that shows a, a stark differences between the two economic systems. And I was curious now that the the country has reunified, that the standards in the East go up. Yes, absolutely. Now. It's, it, now, there's only very small difference. Uh, the, the, the share of people who own a telephone or who own a car is uh, similar in East and West Germany. There are no more people in East Germany who, uh, who have um, to share their toilet with other people as they did before. They don't have to stand longer uh, time in, in queues or on the long lines how they did before. So a lot of things became, became better. And this is, uh, uh, it's, it's even, it's, uh, if, if you look at the cities, they are much more beautiful uh, now than they were in socialist times. And this is not only true for, you know, for East Germany. Uh, another perfect example is Poland. A lot of people don't know it, but Poland was one of the poorest countries in Europe in socialist times. They were poorer than the Ukraine, and their GDP per capita was half of this in Czech Republic at this time. And then they had very good economic reforms, 
I know this uh, finance minister who did all these reforms, Balcerowicz is his name, and since 25 years, Poland is Europe's growth champion. Standard of living increased so much. It's incredible. If you compare it, what was there before? I, I produced now another film. Uh, um, I, I hope people can see it at the uh, Freedom Fest in, in Memphis this year. It's about the story about uh, Poland. So, but uh, this is uh, only for the future. So th- there are a lot of examples uh, that where the transition of uh, from socialism to capitalism improved standards of living for people. But there's not one single example in history where, so, where socialism improved standard of living for ordinary people. Um, I, I, I've counted, there were 25 different socialist experiments in the la- last 100 years. And they tried it in so many ways. In Cuba, in another way than in North Korea. In East Germany, another way than in Yugoslavia. In China, another way than in Soviet Union. In Albania, in another way than in R- Romania. But without any exception, they failed time and again. And I think if you do all time, times and again the same thing, and you expect different results, it's 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 insane. It's crazy. And the last example I remember is not so long ago. It's, it is almost 25 years ago when Hugo Chavez came to power in Venezuela. And I remember this time, intellectuals in Europe, in the United States, left-wing intellectuals were enthusiastic about Hugo Chavez. They called it the socialism in 21st century. And they told us even it is a role model and we should learn something from his economic policies and all this stuff. You know what happened then? They had an inflation rate of 1 million percent the year, 1 million percent. 10 percent of the population fled now from Venezuela. And by the way, of course, they abolished democracy. There's no longer freedom of speech. There's no longer freedom of press. And if you ask socialists now, what about Venezuela? Do you know what is their trick? They tell you always, oh, sorry, this wasn't real socialism, but next time it will work. And this, they tell the same thing since hundreds of years. If, if it, in the beginning they are enthusiastic, they were even enthusiastic about Stalin, about Mao, about other dictators, and after it failed, they tell you every time, no, no, this wasn't true socialism. This is crazy. <laughs> as, as people go through the hardships, if that's not true socialism, then I'd hate to see what it truly is. Uh, but that's the problem. The more freedom they take away and the less you fight, the more they feel they have the liberty to take away your freedoms. And you become so submissive that you no longer fight back, which is what we're seeing time and time again. But with our new information age... With even a platform like this, word is getting out and people might be starting to see, see the light. We see the change, as you mentioned, in Vietnam, a perfect example of going from pure communism into a more free capitalistic uh, ideal where property is a, you're able to own. You're able to start a business. And you see the change in the country from when the fall of Saigon to today. And there is hope in the world. Yes, and and I tell you a funny story. I was invited, you know, I travel all over the world. My book is published in 30 languages, and I travel to each country. Last year, I was in 17 countries, this year, 30. And one country was Vietnam, and I was invited to four different universities 
for example, foreign trade university, and they invited me to workshop. And the topic was, how can we improve the image of rich people? Can you imagine a workshop at American University, how to improve image of rich people? This was in so-called socialist Vietnam, this workshop. They read my books and they discussed with me how can, what can we do against prejudice and stereotypes about rich people, about entrepreneurs. And they had the slogan there at the university, rich country, rich people. So, and can you imagine something happens like this at uh, uh, social science uh, uh, um, department in United States University? I don't think so. <laughs> well, what we have to do is teach these generations coming up our founding principles and the beauty of a free capital, uh, free market society as capitalism as we know it should be. But we have it where now you have the social engineering, these ESGs, and you have investment com- uh, companies adhering to these uh, wokeism, the ESGs, uh, was it equity, society, or governance, or whatever yeah. it stands for. And every time they invest in them, they fail. So now you have your pension. You have people losing their pensions, losing their bank accounts because these investment companies are following the wokeism. Sooner or later, it's going to blow up big time, and I'm hoping the pendulum swings all the way back where we dump this and no longer have it to ban it. I know uh, we're trying to get it banned here in South Carolina. I believe Florida has already done it where you cannot mandate that the investment must go into an ESG company. You have the freedom to take your money out and place it wherever you want, which is what freedom is. But we're we're, we're falling to wokeism like Budweiser. This is a very interesting topic. Uh, By by the way, I just uh, yesterday I I read a book. I bought it in in the United States, and the title is "The Dictatorship of Woke Capital: How Political Correctness Captured Big Big Business." Uh, Very interesting. It's all about this ESG stuff. And you know, in former times, this left-wing activists—they were only in universities. They were in the media, of course, they were in politics, but they were not so much involved in in business and and not in Wall Street and not in the finance industry. But it's changed. It is the last thing that they want to do now, even even to 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 how to say to 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 form or to restructure even the business and finance industry according to their ideology and. And even someone like Warren Buffett, you know, who's more kind of left-leaning in a way, but moderate left, even he criticized it and said, "This is this is this is uh, wrong to do these these things." It is, and also that with this equity, that you have people no longer getting into positions of power in companies through meritocracy, but because of equity. So if you're the right skin color, right gender, right flavor of the month, whatever it is, you get to be sitting on the board of this company determining the policies. But you, no, no, you didn't earn your way up into that seat. But equity but this, this, determines this that you get that seat with in, no experience. Yes, it's the same what they did in universities. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't like the system, what they have in, in, in universities in the United States, that you have quota, for example, for 
uh, for uh, black people or for uh, negative for, for Asian people. I think there's a discrimination against Asian people uh, uh, there. Uh, and, and I think it should only be who, who, who's, uh, who, who, who's able, who, uh, who has good results, he should go there, whether it's in university or whether it's in company. It's not whether... Uh, it's uh, the right gender or, or race or uh, his sexual orientation. This 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 shouldn't count. This, every, I think everyone should be equal in this way, with, without discrimination for and against uh, anyone. But this is not what they do. They they want quota for everything and for everybody. Well, and I'm going to throw up a sore subject to a lot of people: the minimum age, the minimum wage act. Now, in the past, you go in, you, you worked hard, you proved to your boss that you had value. So the guy that was slacking off will get maybe pennies on the dollar compared to what you were getting. But now with the mandatory minimum wage, they again removed meritocracy to equity. And I think that's another thing that is destroying our economy. The, 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 you know, on the first glance, for people who don't understand anything about the economy, they think it's a good thing. Yes, there's a, should, there's a fair minimum wage. But in the end, we know it from a lot of countries that it's destroyed even uh, a lot of working spaces for, uh, for, for people. And, and, it uh, has. Uh, and, and, they, and they write it more and more and more. They, they start with something, ah, it's only this, and then it's, it's, it has to be more, more, more. And in the end, they, they, they harm the companies with, with this. Well, actually, some of these companies are making out like bandits. All right, you want a $15 minimum wage, and local Burger King, McDonald's, I'm sorry, local McDonald's near me, they were protesting out front, picketing the McDonald's for $15 minimum wage. And I said, brilliant, as I drove past. Go ahead, get your $15 minimum wage. Well, the owner said, okay, I'll give you the $15 minimum wage. He closed down for about four months retooled the entire inside so where he may have had 25 employees he only needed five because he automated everything inside and there go 20 people without a job so you this want that minimum this is, wage this is a, this is perfect a perfect example, example. In, and this is what happens very often maybe they have good intentions in a way but i think we should measure people about their intentions, but about the results, like in this case. And the result was not good for the workers. It was maybe good for five of them, but for 20 of them, it was bad. Yeah. Now, I, I call it Wally World. Walmart is another perfect example. When Walmart said, okay, we'll pay you the 15. No, we're going to raise it up higher than 15. We'll give you a higher minimum wage to encourage you to work for us. But the trick is, is if you ever walk into a Wally World, which is what I call it, you'll see everyone doing a self-checkout line with one employee overseeing all these self-checkouts. And you may see only one or two manned counters for people that are handicapped, whatever. And you see about 10 others closed. So they're funneling everyone into these self-checkout items. So they don't have to pay the extra cashiers. They swiftly move people along faster but how many more people could have had a job if they didn't demand that higher minimum wage? Yes, so I think we agree. There are a lot of examples, and hopefully I think there are a lot of people who think like you and me 
in the United States. I know it from from the poll, but the problem is that the others, the, the anti-capitalists, the statists, that that, that there are too, too, that they are much louder. And I think this is something that we could should change, that we should speak up louder. And this is the way, you know, why I produced this film or why I wrote this book in defense of capitalism, because this, all these anti-capitalists, all these left-leaning people, they are very loud. And but I think there's a, I think there's a majority in the United States who are pre, pro-free market economy. But the problem is that that they are more silent. This. And I think this is the, the real problem. I, I, I don't know what you think about it. Well, I think they're quiet simply because they don't want to be like the, the baker who got hauled into court and sued because he wouldn't make a wedding cake for someone who he, he religiously felt was a violation of his religious faith. Their <laughs> yes, fear, their fear of being picketed yes. to being protested, their fear of retaliation keeps them silent. And we have to be silent no longer because every time we remain silent, we lose another freedom. Your book is In Defense of Capitalism. Work, and I have a link on the show page because I get a lot of people hitting the archives. They can click on the on it in defense of capitalism and get your book up on Amazon. Where else can people find you? You can find it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You can order it uh, online. And and I, I would ask, uh, it's it's quite new the book. I think there's not a single review now on Amazon. So I would ask you and everyone who's uh, going to buy now because it's brand new, buy it, give it specially, uh, write a review on Amazon. I will read it and. A lot of other people can can read it. I, I hope you will like the book. Well, I'll go one step further. And you leave it on your coffee table. And when you have a party at your house or you're having Christmas over there, make sure your liberal family members and friends see the book sitting on your coffee table. <laughs> that's one thing yes. has that. <laughs> That, that, that's, a great, that's a great idea. I, I, I would like, and I will be back in the United States. I think in, I, I've never been there. I think I will go to Memphis in July because there's this big freedom fest where you can uh, meet a lot of conservative libertarian people. So, and I want to show them my, my new film. And I love it too in the United States because yes, there are a lot of socialists today, but I think the majority of ordinary people in the United States, I think they they understand that free market economy is the better system. They don't want socialism. This is only the the, the, the really it's an idea of intellectuals and and politicians. But I think there is a majority of people, especially in the in the United States. And I I saw it also with my poll that there was only one country in the world where people were more pro capitalist than the United States. And this was Poland, by the way. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you have been a fantastic guest. I welcome you back at any time. Uh, and when you do come to the United States, you know, get a hold of me. I mean, I'm here in South Carolina, so maybe you can make a swing through South Carolina. And I still it's run a, a tea party. I've got my meeting on Monday. So for since 2009, I've been keeping alive a tea party. Oh, that's great to hear. What a pleasure to speak to you. Have a great day, and uh, thank you for supporting free market economy. Goodbye. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. God bless. All right. Thank you. What a what a what a fantastic guest.
Um, we're waiting for our other guest. It looks like we have a little bit of a communication problem with him. So uh, I'm going to see if I can try to get a hold of his agent and see if she can uh, find out what is going on here and maybe have him call in. So, all right. So, great guest, Curtis. you have anything to add? Oh, yeah. Um <laughs> I mean, we, we talk about economics and um, um, those sort of things, but from a personal um, perspective, if you never visit Germany, go ahead and um, get get over there. It's a, it's a pretty country. Um, maybe it's um, good enough for um, Andy to get back in the traveling business and <laughs> and get people <laughs> over there. <laughs> it's really is a nice you know, country. Um, that's about all I have to say about it. But um, it was very um, informative, and it's good that we have guests who are very informative. Um, you get to learn new things that you didn't know before, and I'm going to get his book as well. Um, and, and that's another thing about our guests. A lot of them have written books, so they leave us not with just a great message, but um, they, they have put that message um in writing in their works, so I am yeah. I am always yeah. looking for new information, more you know, more knowledge. Absolutely, and absolutely. No, he's a great guest, and I only expected him. We only expected him for half an hour, and it's great oh, yeah. that we can have him for the full hour. I did not expect him to call in early, which was a pleasure, and he was a lot of fun to speak with. Yep, and it was seamless. I'm sorry, Very I'm half seamless. German. I still can't. <laughs> uh, only thing I can say anyway. in German is "konsultite." Um, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> it's the only <laughs> German that I know. <laughs> How did you say it? Nine frequency dates. Anyway, uh, this should be coming out. This was in the New York Post uh, back on April 8th. And why it's not getting a lot more play. But the son of George Soros seems to be a frequent, a rather frequent guest at the White House. Alexander Soros. Um, he's a prolific Democratic uh, fundraiser in his own right. He likes to boast about his relationships with world leaders on social media. There's an article in the New York Post by Rich Calder and Matthew Sadaka 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 uh, on April 8th. That uh, I encourage people to take a look at. It's kind of lengthy, but here we go. White House records show an expansive list of his Alexander Soros's meetings uh, on December 12th of 22. Uh, Mariana Adami, she's the counselor to Rich Ricchetti, uh, who is a Biden uh, advisor. Uh, he visited same day John Finer, Deputy National Security Advisor. Uh, the day before, he was at a state dinner in the South Lawn for the French President Emmanuel Macron, attended by President Biden. Um, Nina, oh, I can't even pronounce this, was a then uh, advisor, Chief of Staff Ron Klein. He was visiting her. And they're showing several different times over and over again how he was in the inner circle of the Biden administration. And this is a guy that's been you know, donating a lot of money. He has individually donated more than $11 million to left political action committees since 2010, including $2 million 
to Senate to the Senate Majority Pack of Schumer. So he donated to Chuck Schumer two million. He's given to Nancy Pelosi. Um, he has photos of him and his dad with uh, Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, and other Democrats at fundraisers. So this kid, Alexander Soros, you better keep an eye on him because I'm telling you, he is going to be a mover and a shaker. Really, really big. So anyway, uh, that is something to take a look at. This is broken in the New York Post. And so far, no one else is starting to pick up on it. All right, and Panky has, what is here? He's got abortion and gender-altering bill moves forward in Oregon, becoming typical of liberal Democrats. Yeah, there's several of them. There's one in California. Uh, There's one in Oregon. In left-leaning states, they're allowing 10-year-olds to have abortions without parental knowledge, no age restriction for gender-altering procedures, uh, yeah, it's it's getting out of hand, and I think uh, parents are going to start to stand up and demand their rights. Florida recently passed a bill uh, in your state, Curtis, where, uh, thank God for DeSantis, that parents must be involved in knowing what their children are being taught, what their gender pronouns are, and certain oh, yeah. subjects cannot be taught to children below a certain age until sixth, sixth grade before you start talking about the gender bending. Uh, it, uh, parents are losing their rights, and oh, yeah. I'm sorry. This is your flesh and blood. These, this is your life. This is your, your family. Well, and you're having government coming in and telling you what you can and cannot do, what your children can and cannot learn. If you're a Christian, if you're conservative, how you're bad. We'll send the FBI out to investigate you if you're a parent at a school board meeting and protesting what is being taught to the children because you think it's, it's, it's uh, uh, sexually abusive. Yeah, I was just uh, reading a couple of days ago, I think this happened in California, where a mother found out that um, the, school, the school her daughter went to um, was helping her daughter to... Um, um, re reidentify as a male, um, and um, she found out by accident, and now she's um, going to do her best to sue the school board. But um, that's that's what's going on in America, you know, um, this gender reassignment uh, movement with children who don't really have the maturity or or the you know wherewithal to know about these matters. And they're being, you know, um, guided and um, probably, I would say, brainwashed to to, um, doing these things and without their parents, you know, knowledge or permission. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us, you know. Um, Yes, we do. It still won't be enough to um, just, you know, tell people to move away from that state because we still got to think of the the children. You know, they they can't just up and move. We got to do this for all of America. It's not right. Well, not only that, we have to look out for the grooming. Because now these kids, with the access to the Internet through their smart devices, I mean, even the watches on their wrist, and they can go into the Internet, and some some pervert is out there waiting for them to show up. And then they groom them. Now, you kids, when they go through puberty, they all feel... Um, 
they feel disassociated. Their body's changing. They don't understand it. Their hormones are raging. Um, they may feel a little bullied. They may feel out of step with their friends. So what do they do? They look for something to affirm them. They need someone to look up to, someone to help guide them. And that's what the parents are supposed to be there for. But no, instead, left-leaning social engineering individuals get a hold of them and say they're ripe for picking. They are absolutely ripe for picking. And these young, vulnerable children who only just want to be accepted, to be loved, to be part of the group, part of the crowd, to know that they mean something, they value something, they want something to guide them. And what better than a sexual deviant to then groom these children into a life of hell afterwards? Bodies and minds forever altered. Forever. And this is what we're allowed to happen in our nation. You know... Some of the convenience stores I go to, I haven't seen it lately. A couple of years ago, before COVID, they, they used to have a publication. It looked like a little newspaper. But it was a listing of all the, the sexual predators in your area with their pictures and stuff. And I, I was just surprised how many we had in our county. I just had no idea. We had like well over three or 400 sexual predators. And a lot of them live in your area. You don't even know it. But um, mm-hmm. you have to be careful. I would advise anyone with young children, um, 14 and under, you know, keep an eye on your children, especially when they're outside playing. It. Um, and if you live in a rural area where there's roads and things like that and no, no, you know, um, houses or anything nearby, don't let your kids walk down them unless they in a group but, of three or four. Curtis, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not just outside the home now. They're inside the home. They're on the Internet. That's the whole thing. They don't have to leave mm-hmm. their homes to find their victims. They sit there on the computer or on their smart device, and they troll, and they find that one child, that one individual that wants to be reaffirmed, wants someone to accept them. So mm-hmm. they work on them, and they work on them on oh, the yeah. Internet. And the parents have no idea this is going on. You can keep an eye on your kid playing on the front yard, but how do you protect them when you're not there to see what they're surfing on the web? Now, there's there's different things out there that you can control, putting controls on that. But kids today always find ways around it. And all these, as uh, Joe Gibson points out in the the chat room, not all these sex offender registries are accurate, but it is good to know what is in your area. And just on a whim one day, I went to see what was around, and I live less than a mile away from the elementary school. And I just wanted to see, and I was shocked to find within three houses of the entrance to the school, there was a sex offender listed. Whether or not they're there now or today, we can't say because we can't tell if they're accurate or not. And I'm not knocking on the guy's door saying, excuse me, are you a pervert? <laughs> That's not going to go over too well. I'll probably shot mm-hmm. fired through the door at me. But you can be aware when the child is out. But what you have to be more aware of is when you can't see that child, what are they seeing on the Internet? Who are they talking to? And that's where you have to find some way of monitoring their access. Yeah, what's um, even worse is you turn on the TV. You just turn on the TV and you surf through Netflix or any others, and how many perverted shows are out there? 
But thankfully, yeah. and this is something I was wanted to talk about in the future, we're finding a rise of Christian faith-based films and TV shows are starting to show up. So again, monitoring what they watch on TV, monitoring their social interactions on the Internet, very, very important because we're losing too many kids today. Yeah, what I was driving at with kids outside was um, those kids who get snatched and put into the sex slave or just get murdered or something. That's what I was talking about, basically, you know, young kids being out without, you know, parental um, observation or something like that. And then somebody comes along driving or walking and snatch them. Yeah, that's a lot of that going on, too, the sex slave trade. Um, in America and the world. Yep. No, not only that, we have the open border. We have them being coming across the borders by traffickers, by coyotes. So it's not even just your child. It's it's happening. And there's no way for us to protect these vulnerable children because of this administration. And that's why it's so important we get people out there for the 2024 election and we take this country back at the voting booth. I agree. We have to do something. Um, this country is going downhill and it's going fast. And um, if we don't do anything, <clears throat> excuse me, if we don't do anything to change the uh, trajectory of this country, we're going to end up like like um, our guest was talking about, a Cuba or North Korea. Um, just... Um, not anything I'm looking forward to, not at all. But being the positive person that I am, I believe we're going to get through this. I think all this stuff going on with Trump is going to backfire like all the other plots they didn't put against this guy. You know, It's going to backfire, blow up in their faces. But that's my thoughts. Yeah, well, Pianki put up a link in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio that is a link to the sex offenders uh, uh, website so that you can go in. And if, I believe that this is the one you key in. Uh, let me know, Pianki, that this is the one you key in your state. And you can probably, I think, put it in by zip code so you can put in your specific zip code, if I remember correctly. The last time I checked was a couple of years ago. So, anyway, it looks like we lost our next guest, uh, his agent just asked if she can rebook it, which uh, we'd be happy to, um, but uh, still have not gotten the show up on my homepage. Still can't get the video up. I don't know what the heck happened there, but we have been up on Facebook, so we're up on there. But And, of course, we, we're proud. We are absolutely proud. Got banned from YouTube again. That's two for two. Wow. That's twice. That's <laughs> twice. Well, that's a record. That's a, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, um, as I was talking about, you know, here we we got these uh, liberal donors that are trying to force us into this one global society. Um, and it, it, this is crazy. There has to be a reform on donations. And uh, I think it was, uh, was it Joe or someone else in the chat room mentioned it just a little while ago, uh, that uh, we need to control these packs and these donations going into there because you get money like this that are putting, they're putting it in there, 
the teaching, uh, the diversity, the, the DEI, the ESGs, the teaching, all the alphabet soups, the LBGT, XYZ community um, the doctrine. They're promoting this in our society and they're forcing it down our throats. And, you know, as conservatives, we say, all right, you live your life the way you choose. I'll live my life the way I choose, and the two don't cross. Uh, but that is not what is happening. They're forcing us to accept them, and yet they fail to accept us as we are. We used to be able to live side by side, and what they're doing is dividing our society. And by dividing our society, they are destroying our society. And somewhere along the way, we've got to put our foot down and say, stop. You want me to accept you for who you are? Fine, I accept you for who you are. But don't force me to become you, and don't force me to change. So now you want tolerance? Now you have to tolerate me. It has to go in a two-way street, and that's what we have to force them to do. So don't force your ESG down us. Don't force your DEI, DEI, whatever the heck that is. Don't force down our throat critical race theory. Don't force that 1619 on us. Allow us to raise our children the way we want and how we want. And we got a guest calling in, so let's bring on. Here we go, Jumping Joe Gibson. How are you doing, Joe? How are you doing? Have not spoken to you in a while. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's been a long time, a real long time, actually. Uh, so, uh, but uh, I'm glad I was able to catch the show. Everything happens for a reason. We'll see what happens. But uh, you know what you're talking about here is, you know, our country's broken, and whatnot. And we, when this is what we talk about, and it's my show too, and anybody's everybody's out there who's uh, trying to change things, and I'm going to be running again here in North Carolina for my district, uh, District 65, and to restore our Constitution, restore our republic. That was my platform last time. And and the thing with it is, is that we're losing the information war, and you just made a key point as you're blocked from YouTube. You know, and, and truth in advertising, uh, the deceptive sales practices, big, big problem out there. And the, the progressive movement has been doing this for so many years to infiltrate our schools and teach our young. Which for us to reverse the roles, it's going to take so much time. And I don't think we have that time because they got us. And they have us in the communist and these uh, progressive socialists. They've, they've got us They're right where they want us. And we're at a breaking point, And we're divided 50-50 pretty much across the board in this country. And I ask all the time, well, where do we – they're not budging. We're not budging. Uh, but we see some of the conservatives budging a little bit, you know, on the guns and the abortion. Well, you know, maybe, you know, we can ban the assault rifles again. You know, no, I say no. But that's it's dividing right down the middle. Where do we go from here? They're not budging. We're not budging. So what happens? Are we going to a civil war bloodshed eventually? Is there going to be a spark down the line with one of these militia communities or with some anti-government or, or, or whatnot, even within our own political perspective? We saw what happened on January 6th. We're very close to a spark there nationwide. I mean, do we see Tennessee, what just happened in Tennessee? So if this starts popping up across the country, where do we go? You know, what's the one? How do we fix this? That's a, that's a million-dollar question. Well, we, we fix it one household at a time, one parent at a time, one child at a time, and we work our way up. There is a growing movement for more classical uh, education, especially Christian classical uh, there's a huge push. What this pandemic did, actually, like as I said before, was in, in disguise a blessing. Parents woke up and they're saying, wait a minute, public schools suck. What we need to do is put, yank our kids out of public school, homeschool them, traditional school them, religious school them, 
find a charter school, find anything other alternative to a public school. And I believe now it's 12 states that have choice, education choice. We've been trying to push that here in South Carolina. It gets just so far and it hasn't made it all the way into the new session just yet. So we have to keep on pushing for education savings accounts so the dollar follows the child. And the more we can raise a more traditional, healthy family, the better chance we have of securing this nation. But it's, you can't change people at the top. So we have to start at the bottom and build up and rebuild this nation. One parent, one child at a time, one school, one community, and all politics is local. And we have to start here and push it upward. And real quick, what happened there in South Carolina a few months ago? I heard about the Freedom Caucus there, and and uh, what had happened is the, the majority of the conservatives there voted, uh, made them sign a pledge or a promise that they couldn't oppose their fellow Republicans in a primary or in on, on political issues. Did you hear about that, or what's going on with that? I've, I've been hearing a lot of different, and I have not had a chance to um – uh, call Drew and find out about it because I know Drew McKissick, who's the GOP chair here. Um, it, it's something that was done that was got really distorted. You know, there is uh, the Republican creed. If you're saying, "Hey, listen, we're going to sign and agree to the Republican creed," there's no problem with that. Uh, what is going on with the Freedom Caucus? I heard from some members that it was blown away to proportion. Others saying, "Well, no, no, it was a, a, a loyalty oath." I'm hearing two different things from two di- from people inside the coalition, but two different stories, and no one quite knows what it is. So hopefully we're going to have our convention May 20th up in Columbia, and I'll I'll hear more about it up there because then I'll be one of the boots on the ground since I'm a delegate again. Thank God, <laughs> I think this is five conventions in a row I've managed to be a delegate. So I'll I'll hear more. I know I will. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking my call. Well, we're going to have to have you back when you throw your hat in the ring. And you're, you do have a show here on Blog Talk Radio, and you know I have no ego. So tell people where they can find you, Joe. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings, uh, of Restoring Our Republic, um, Understanding the Times in which we live today. Uh, that's what it's about, where we bring in everybody that we can to try to build a righteous army across the country that can stand up and uh, address the issues that you're talking about, I talk about, and many other conservatives or constitution believers talk about and want to fix it, you know, because we care about our republic, and we're not going to let it just go without a fight. Absolutely. And there's a lot of us that are willing to stand up and fight, and we have to do it logically and clearly and with a purpose. And it starts... Like I said, it starts. Everything is local at your community, your, your community council, your school board, your garbage collector, <laughs> your dog catcher. That's right. But it goes up the food chain, and once that food chain, you push up the food chain, they're going to say, "Wait a minute, uh, the rabble rousers down there are getting a little restless. Maybe we should start listening." As a matter of fact, Tim Scott's office is going to be getting a phone call from me very shortly. Because I watched one of his interviews where he was kind of like, well, oh, well, um, I, I'm not, I, even though I'm pro-life, I'm going to have a bit. And like, oh, wait a minute. Don't go wishy-washy on me, Tim Scott. You want right. to throw your hat in the ring for president? You cannot be wishy-washy. You've got to stand your ground and stand firm. 
That's one problem that's I right. have with his office. A little wishy-washy. That's right. <laughs> Amen to that. That's right. That's absolutely correct. No deals with the devil, you know. But yeah, I will be. I'll be happy to call in, in the future when I do get the campaign fully running. But you know, it's uh, yeah. If anybody wants to reach me, you can go to www.josephgibson.us, and uh, that's my campaign website. So, but yeah, I will be running again. My name will be on the ballot. I got my committee all up and going. So with the state. So, uh, but I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for taking my call. All right. God bless, Joe. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Um, one of the important things when I was talking about, Curtis, about all uh, politics is local, it's important that you know who your, your elected official is, whether they're the, the tax auditor or if they're, they're, I don't know, the coroner, whatever, the sheriff, to know them, to, have, to be able to turn around and reach out either through an email, a postcard, a phone call, and you call them. You got something bothering you? I'm sorry. A school board, I don't like the fact that you're having this, this, and that, and these books are here in the, in the library for kids at the age of five and six to read, age inappropriate. You speak up. You make your, your voice heard. And you don't have kids? You still go to a school board meeting because your taxes pay for that school board and for the school district. So you've got money invested in it. So you don't have kids in it, but your money is in it. It's your dollars. And how that child graduates from school is how your community is going to be run. Because that child now becomes the next door catcher, councilman, mayor, whatever. Because how they're raised yes. is how your community is going to go. Sadly, go ahead, Curtis. a lot of Americans don't get involved in politics because, I don't know, they... they see where it has value to them. You know, it's like the same people say, well, my vote don't count. Um, I I would encourage them to get involved because it does make sense, their involvement. Um, we Fortunately, we have some newer groups like Moms for Liberty and Moms for America who are like keeping an eye on um, what's going on in our school systems. Um, but we just need to get parents more engaged, I believe, and you know, to make a true, a true, true, you know, difference. And it's just not yeah. happening. And then again, there are some people that, that they're working two jobs and well, they got to get home and feed their kids. And I mean, you got to do got to do to um, survive in this this um this economy. So I can and that too. But- well, that's that's the beauty of this new electronic age. You don't have to physically show up now at these meetings. You don't have to physically show up their office. You've got the computer. You've got your smart device. True. You don't need that. And there are times where I've, I'm sitting home in my, my nightgown, and I'll click on to the school board meeting. And, oh, wait a minute. I'm not liking what I hear. And you click the little button and say, I want to make a comment. And you can comment. And the day and age of cameras on the computers and Zoom meetings and stuff, I have appeared at school board meetings via Zoom and have given my testimony and demanded answers. You can do that with your, your council meeting, your whatever you, whatever you have, your parish meeting, whatever it is. You can still do that and get your voice heard. And you know what? It goes up on the Internet, and the whole World Wide Web can see the fact that you made a comment. We had redistricting here recently, and I couldn't show up in person. So I sent a video message to be played, which they did. 
You can even just send a video message, or you can send a text message just be read out loud and put into the record. Your voice can be heard, and every time they hear your name, you're going to be remembered. And they're going to say, well, this person stands on this issue. Now, if she stands there, how many more people stand behind them? And that's what you get your friends and family and everyone else to show up. And then they know. Because when I went up there in person one time, I said, I stand and I named the, the heads of the different groups that were around me. Moms for Liberty and whatever else. I had them all there. And all of a sudden, I wasn't just one person leading one group. I was one person speaking for six other groups there. And there's power. There's power in those numbers. And they look around that room and see those people sitting there, nodding their head and agreeing with everything I'm saying. And it registers. And it changes the path of your community. I see people showing up in our studio uh, phone bank. And if this is our next guest calling in, Murray, uh, raise your hand. And we will take you in on the call. Because I don't recognize the phone number. It's not the phone number I was given. And Curtis, if he doesn't call in, if you can, reach out and call to him. Yeah. Anyway, but that's my rant for the moment. And I'm starting to lose my voice. But uh, we have waiting for Murray's Sabrin to call in. He's the author of From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, an American Story. And we have a lot to talk about with him, if that is him, in the the, uh, studio here. And then we have our final guest coming up at in half an hour from Heritage Foundation. Those who are looking for Mark Tapscott, he got a bit of a promotion. He is building up a bureau for the Epic Times in Washington, D.C. They have him on some sort of a project. So he's going to be out of touch with us until somewhere around mid-June. Well, he said he will be coming back on and enjoying coming on every other week, twice a month. So we wish Mark a lot of good luck on his project with the Epic Times down in D.C. Hey, he's got himself a promotion. Good for him. Mazel tov. And let's bring in our next guest and welcome back to the show, Murray Sabrine. Good afternoon, Murray. How are you today? I'm losing my voice. Uh, I'm very good, Annie. Uh, get some lozenges and we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we had on earlier, we were talking about uh, Rainier Zeidelman about the defense of capitalism, and you fall right into this, what our economy is turning into. And I was reading an article that, and I've read several articles from very various uh, uh, business people and, and oh, good Lord, I can't even talk, economics uh, professors, saying that we are heading into a full-fledged inflation in the second quarter of this year, uh, what are you reading? What are you reading in the tea leaves? Well, actually, uh, inflation peaked a year ago uh, when we had a year-over-year inflation of 9%, the highest in 40 years, and the rate of inflation has been coming down, which is good news, but it's still very high relative to where we've been for the past 40 years. So the average family is losing purchasing power because their salaries are not keeping up with the uh, rate of price increases. And so uh, remember, the the consumer price index is really a mixed bag. It's sort of uh, everything is thrown into the kitchen sink. For example... Um, uh, automobiles are in there. We don't buy automobiles every month. And so what I would advocate is that we only put in the index things that we buy on a regular basis, food, and even clothing we don't buy on a regular basis, but uh, we do buy clothing throughout the course of the utilities we buy uh, every month. Uh, And other things, cable service, uh, cell phone service, these are things that we buy on a consistent basis. But things that have a long shelf like live computers, 
Uh, we don't buy computers every uh, month. Uh, neither do we buy any uh, TVs, for example. So we should have a separate category for what I would consider consumer capital goods, things that have a long uh, life like automobiles and computers. And then, of course, you should have services, which is a separate category. Then we should have taxes because, we you know, taxes uh, keep on going up, property taxes and the other taxes that we pay. So right now the Consumer Price Index is showing uh, a year-to-year increase of around 5%, which is still relatively high. Because in 1971, Nixon panicked when we had the 4% inflation, and he imposed wage price controls, and uh, that really had a counterproductive effect on the economy. Getting back to where we are today, uh, people are finding it hard to make ends meet, and uh, the sad reality is that so many Americans don't have $1,000 in savings to meet any emergency expense. So we have a real problem in this country because the economists and the politicians are saying our economy is based upon consumption, and therefore you better spend if you want to have a good life. Well, that's not true. Our economy is based upon production, and the more production we have, the, the lower prices will be. And that's something that most economists don't understand, is that the natural order of things in an economy is for pr- prices to decline, as we've seen in a lot of high-tech items over the last 30 years. And this is my frustration that that message hasn't gotten through to the Federal Reserve Board, who believes that 2% inflation should be their target when what should be their target is is uh, none of their business. They should just uh, not print any more money and, and not manipulate interest rates and allow the free market to determine interest rates, and we could use whatever money we have in order to buy the goods and services and invest in things and make charitable contributions, and that's the essence of a free enterprise capitalist economy. You know, um, when I was growing up, back in the 19... Um, <laughs> we were encouraged to put money... <laughs> You like that one? Yeah. Uh, I, I earned every gray hair I got <laughs> the hard way. But we were encouraged to put our money into savings accounts. Yep. All right. And we, we were told, yeah, and actually uh, government uh, savings bonds. You buy the savings bonds for $25, $50, $100, whatever. And you were encouraged to invest your money and save it and put it aside. But you don't hear that. And, in fact, no. if you try to get open a savings account, you would get more money in an interest-bearing checking account than you do in an interest-bearing savings account, which I find yep. highly ironic. Yep. I, I, no, use, no. Uh, I use a, I use believe it or not, I use a PayPal credit uh, debit card because I know at the end of the month I get cash back, which is mm-hmm. more in interest than I get in a savings account. Yeah, yeah. Well, the savings accounts were at zero for a long time because the Federal Reserve depressed interest rates, which they never should have done, and they and. Uh, Anyone who has any sort of brains about money and banking realize that when you keep interest rates artificially low, which they did, you create bubbles, and that's exactly what we've had the past few years, and those bubbles are unwinding in the stock market, in the bond market, in in real estate in some markets. Uh, Collectibles are still going through the roof. I mean, I I watched that show on Motor Trend uh, Cable of uh, the Meekum Auto Auctions, and you have cars selling for a million, two million dollars. It's incredible. Uh, Again, supply, demand, but also there's so much money in in people's pockets and in their uh, savings and checking accounts. They have money to spend $2 million on on an automobile, which is really incredible. And so, um, yeah, right now we're getting uh, 
uh, on my money market accounts that I'm getting at my investment firm, I'm getting around 4.5%, which is still below the rate of inflation. We should, we should be getting 2% above the rate of inflation. That's what the corporate finance textbooks teach, which I taught for 35 years, is that we should get the rate of inflation plus 2%, the real return, uh, and that would be the interest we get on our savings. We don't get that. So not only are we losing on our salaries because we're not getting salaries uh, in conjunction with the uh, cost of living, but we're not getting enough interest to make up for the inflation that we're getting. So the Federal Reserve has really done such a disservice to the American people that uh, it's amazing that people in Congress are not banging their fist on the table and saying, stop in manipulating the economy, to stop manipulating interest rates, and stop printing money because that causes um, real incomes to go down for the for the vast majority of the American people. Well, you know, the dollar that we had ten years ago is worth what now? What eighty cents? And yet prices increase. Yeah, at I the mean, same time. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I I can remember when gasoline was twenty five cents a gallon back in the nineteen fifties when my father bought his first car in nineteen fifty five. Uh, he bought a used car from his cousin for $500. That's comparable to about $5,000 today because prices have gone up around 10 times or more since the 1950s. Look at housing prices around the country, where they've been uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago and where they are today. Housing has just gone through. Look at education, uh, cost of tuition, cost of medical care. Uh, this is all the result of uh, the Federal Reserve printing money and the average person is left behind because their salaries don't keep up. And so um, uh, for those of us uh, who've been warning about this, I've been warning about this since I first learned about it in the early 1970s in articles and letters to the editor and uh, in in books that I've written about the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. uh, That message, and other people have been writing writing tons of material about this subject, but apparently the people in Washington, D.C., whether in the Congress or the Federal Reserve, don't get the message, which is based upon fundamental economics and fundamental uh, finance, that if you print money, you're going to get higher prices. That means what? Uh, a reduction in the purchasing power of our dollars. Well, the more dollars they put out there that have no backing whatsoever right. makes right. it fiat currency. It's, it's worthless. It is, it's just a piece of paper. And when you think about today's digital age, I mean, how many people actually walk around with cash in their pocket any right. longer? You walk around with your debit card or credit card or whatever. You're mm. using just numbers out there in the Ethernet. Right. And when right. a bank fails and those numbers disappear, then you're, excuse my language, up you know what without a paddle. Yeah. Well, uh, and which is, is what people are starting to find them. Well, there's no question that the federal government announced, um, the Treasury Secretary Yellen announced that uh, all depositors, even if they had more than the $250,000 limit for FDIC insurance, will be getting their money out of SV Bank and Signature Bank. So basically the federal government is guaranteeing all the bank deposits. But the question is where are they getting the money from? And they charge uh, banks um, a slight fee. Uh, That's the insurance fee that the banks have to pay to get that insurance so the depositors uh, don't lose any money. Uh, But this is a mess. The banking system has been a disaster from day one in America because we've had banking panics throughout the 19th century, early 20th century, which gave us the impetus to create the Federal Reserve as the lender of last resort. And uh, it's done a relatively bad job in terms of the purchasing power of the dollar. But what the Federal Reserve does, it has one incredible power to 
power to print money. We don't have that power. And uh, the point I keep on making, and I think you would agree with this, Annie, if we don't have the right to do something, then neither should the government. We don't have the right to kill anybody. Neither should the government. And uh, we, we don't have the right to print money. We don't have the right to take anyone's uh, money uh, through, quote, taxes. Yes, the federal government has it. So it's a very simple legal and ethical and moral principle that if it, something is denied to the public because it's unethical or immoral, then it should be denied to the government as well. Exactly, exactly. And what drives me crazy now, you do go to open up a bank account, and for the bank to hold you your money, they charge you fees. Okay, um, where's the interest coming back on that? No, you want to have a bank account so you can write checks and stuff and have a debit card and, and apply for a credit card. You have to pay X amount of dollars a month for us to hold your money. And that, that to me, is the biggest con job I have ever seen in my life. Oh, but if you're over, you're senior citizen, we're going to waive the fee. But if you want a, a statement mailed to you because you don't own a computer like my 90-year-old mom, we're going to charge you a fee. It's crazy. They're using our money to make money, but we can't make money on our own money. Well, the problem with banking, uh, Annie, is that it operates under fractional reserves. In other words, the banks don't have all the money they say they do uh, if uh, all the customers come to redeem their money. And that's the, that's the uh, leverage that banks have. And so they take our money in, they lend it out, they make a lot of money on that, and um, uh, and they charge us very little in terms of fees. I, I don't have any fees on my checking account or so money market account at my bank. And... Um, uh, if we had a true free market banking system, the banks would keep 100 cents on the dollar for every dollar we deposit uh, in our checking account. On, on our savings accounts, they should be time deposits. In other words, it could be a, a, a week-long time deposit. It could be a month. It could be three months. It could be six months, a year, three years, five years. And we would earn interest just as the banks would take that money, lend it out to um, people who want to buy a car or a house or, or improve their business. Uh, that the banks, in other words, are the middleman between the borrower and the um, and, and the saver, and uh, that's a, what a free market banking system would look like. Instead, we have this hybrid system where we do have CDs and we do have money market accounts, uh, but we have uh, uh, savings accounts and uh, checking accounts where the banks don't have all the money they say they do to redeem the depositors' uh, cash. And that's the, that's the real issue that no one in Washington wants to talk about, the, the, uh, the weakness of the fractional reserve banking system. And, of course, as you pointed out earlier, the money's not backed by anything. It's, re it's, it's really backed by trust, that we trust that we can take a dollar that we earn and turn around and buy something of value in the marketplace. In the old days, as you remember, the dollar was as good as gold because the dollar was backed by gold. The dollar was not an entity of itself. The dollar represented the amount of gold in reserves so the bank or the treasury could issue paper money that reflected the gold that was in reserves. Gold was the money. Silver was the money, not paper. And that has become um, uh, uh, devalued over over time. And then, of course, 1971, Nixon severed the last link between the dollar and gold. In 1933, yeah, yeah. Uh, in 1933, Roosevelt confiscated the people's gold, and that was the biggest theft in American history. And uh, we keep on seeing the same uh, thing played over and over again with with different results. In other words, the biggest theft that occurred recently was the zero interest rates because I, I just read an article a few months ago which uh, 
argued that the American people lost $4 trillion in interest in their savings accounts because of the zero interest rate policy of the Federal Reserve. That's unconscionable. That was the biggest redistribution of income in the history of the world. And, and, and no one in Congress was, was uh, standing up for their constituents, uh, especially senior citizens that rely on savings to uh, uh, live, on, uh, live in retirement. And so um, this is the issue we're facing in the country, is that we have uncontrolled debt at the federal level, federal government. The, F- the Federal Reserve buys up this debt by creating money. It keeps interest rates low. And now, of course, they've raised interest rates to stem the inflation that they created in the first place. So the people in Washington either don't know what they're doing or what they're doing is harming the American people, and they don't seem to care about that. Well, it's planned in order to destroy the United States. Hey, let's, let's come up with the latest and greatest plan to finally destroy the last bastion of freedom, the free market society of America. And that's, that's how I'm looking at it. You've got people trying to destroy us with the, the, the equity, whatever, the ESGs, the DEIs, and every other alphabet soup out there, the wokeism in our economy. You know, they have no place in true capitalism. And yet they're using it to destroy us. But here we are in the coming to the end of the tax season. You know, if that gets mm. your blood boiling, go ahead, Murray. I'm, I'm getting ready to do that. <laughs> well, the thing is, in, in, in nearly 30 years ago, my first book was published, and it really outlined how we could have a tax-free country. And it was based upon sound economic and financial principles. And more importantly, it, it discussed how we can have all the goods and services that we want produced by the private sector or the nonprofit sector. So we don't need a welfare state. We don't need all these alphabet soup agencies running the country, running our lives. And uh, that's the beauty of the free enterprise system. I have a wonderful book on my bookshelf. It's called uh, They Built America. It's about all the men and women entrepreneurs from, from day one of the republic who invented, who, who innovated, who created all the uh, enormous products that we enjoy today, uh, the foundation of our economy was, was created in the 19th century, continued into the 20th century, but it's been eroded over time because of bad policies. So a lot of manufacturing has gone overseas to, to find low-cost uh, production areas. Most production should be done in the United States because we have a lot of smart people here, a lot of talented people here. We have a lot of land that people can build factories, but uh, between environmental regulations, taxes, and other regulations, companies have gone overseas. So the federal government and state governments have created incentives for companies to go overseas instead of keeping those jobs in America. So from my perspective, if we really want American companies to be super competitive in the world economy, we get rid of the corporate income tax because that's a double taxation of income. Um, companies pay taxes on their profits, and then if they, uh, then if they give a dividend, uh, individuals have to pay taxes on those dividends, which have already been taxed at the corporate level. So we should get rid of the corporate income tax, and that would make the United States the beacon, the haven for production, not only for American companies, but for other companies around the world. And we would have, um, we would have the greatest economy ever if we just got rid of the corporate income tax and got rid of the 70,000 pages of regulations that are in, on the books that do nothing uh, but uh, tax corporations indirectly by making them pay for things that they don't need in order to satisfy consumers' needs. And uh, this is why, between regulation and taxation, uh, American businesses are, are under the gun. But the beautiful thing about America, as you pointed out, we still have enough economic freedom that companies are doing quite well who are uh, efficient, 
who are meeting consumer needs, who are producing products at prices people can afford. And that's why when you go to the big box stores or the mom and pop stores, there are an array of goods and services that our ancestors could only have dreamt about uh, you know, 40, 50, 100 years ago. And so uh, that's why I've been uh, beating the drums about why taxation is such a destroyer of prosperity because we have to support the IRS. And these people are wonderful people, but they don't produce anything for the economy. Uh, we have to support the military-industrial complex. We have to support all the uh, welfare spending. And all that is is basically the redistribution of income. People should be working for a living. That's what I learned as a youngster back in the 1950s when my father told me, your job, he said to me when I entered second grade when we moved from Manhattan to the Bronx, is get an education so you can get yourself a decent career. He was a blue-collar uh, worker. He didn't want his kids to be blue-collar workers. Not that there's nothing wrong with it, but that was the American dream of immigrants. Your children go to school. They go to college. They uh, uh, major in something that is going to give them a good career. And that's the, uh, that's the pathway that not only immigrants but native-born Americans have been following for decades. All right, well, you're saying get rid of the income tax, and a lot of people are saying, well, let's go for a fair tax, a national sales tax. You say there's a major flaw in that program. What's the major yeah, flaw? Because, because most people say, I only pay the tax when I purchase an item, and I choose the value of the item and how much to pay in the tax at that point. But, again, there's a big hole in this. Well, the big hole in it is that it maintains the level of government spending. That's the problem. You don't, we don't have to tax if we don't spend uh, $6 trillion or $7 trillion at the federal level. So all, all the fair tax does is basically rearrange the uh, amount of money that's, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, confiscated from the American people. And so what I'm suggesting is that how we tax is not important. What's important is, is how much we spend. And if you spend a little, you're going to tax a little, whether it's a, a small sales tax or a small income tax. So the, the tax issue is really a spending issue, Annie, and that's what we need to address is how do we reduce the size of the federal government. And in my book, I outlined it. I outlined it in my recent Substack column of all the things that could be done to phase out uh, the $7 trillion budget over the next 10, 20 years. And we can do it pretty quickly if the American people embrace the principles of free enterprise and, um, and we cut taxes on spend on, on uh, uh, interest, on dividends, on capital gains, so people can build up wealth over their lifetime, so they won't need Social Security or Medicare. They can open up these accounts uh, when they're in their 20s and 30s sock the money away, and by the time they retire, through the magic of compound uh, returns and compound interest, they will have a bundle of money more than anything that Medicare and Social Security promises young people today. So that's the plan, is to free up the economy so people are in control of their lives, and they can retire whenever they want, 50, 80, uh, uh, 49, uh, 62. Right now, you can only collect Social Security at, minimum, at age 62, and uh, it's being raised slowly over time. And so the government tells you when you can get these benefits, and that should be the government's responsibility. We should determine when we want to retire based upon how much we've saved over our lifetime. And that's the flaw in all these plans in Washington is that don't address the fundamental issue. Namely, we should be working toward financial independence just as the colonists worked for political independence. The corollary of political independence is financial independence. Well, Ronald Reagan in the 80s as president tried to promote 
uh, an individual retirement account separate from Social Security, trying to wean right. the American people off of Social Security. And when Clinton was running, we kept on hearing about entitlement programs. And they would say, well, you have entitlement programs because you're collecting Social Security. You have an entitlement program because you have Medicare. And it's like, oh, stop and back up. I worked all my life. You took money out of my paycheck every single week to go into my account so that when I reach that age, you're promising me my money will be there. That's my savings account, that Social Security. As for Medicare, I pay a premium every month, whether I use medical care or not, so that I'm paying for that insurance plan. That's not an entitlement plan. What the people lump these all together, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security with social with the, the one with it that is the welfare tied up is two different animals. What yep. we have is too much of an entitlement program for welfare programs like Section 8 housing and food mm-hmm. stamps and go on down right. the line. Sure, sure. Well, here's the thing with Social Security. If, a, if an investment company offered a program like Social Security, they'd be in jail because it would be fraud. It's basically an intergenerational chain letter, which is a polite way of saying a Ponzi scheme. So how do we get break yep. this Ponzi scheme, if you will? And what I propose is that young people take their Social Security taxes, that wouldn't be, their income wouldn't be taxed by Social Security, and they open up a super IRA account. And the people that are on Social Security now, like all my friends and me, and other people in America, they would continue to get their Social Security checks over the next 20, 30 years. But in the meantime, all the young people would be saving for themselves. So that's the transition from a government-funded or taxpayer-funded retirement program to an independent retirement program based upon financial independence. And uh, that's what we need to be um, advocating because that's consistent with uh, individual sovereignty and free enterprise because people then would have the ability to invest in real businesses because uh, we know Social Security money goes into the Social Security Trust Fund, which buys government bonds. And that's not a productive enterprise. That just helps fund the welfare warfare state. So we we have to tell the truth about these programs that – uh, they started out as very small programs, had very little impact on the economy, but as the population grew and grew and grew and inflation heated up, uh, the, the program expanded in the size and scope and to where it's now. It's, it's over a trillion dollars a year in Social Security. So we can phase this out over the next uh, two decades or so, and uh, it would get us back to uh, an economy that's based upon real savings, real investment, and real prosperity. Well, the funny thing is we did a show on Social Security some time back, and I'm pulling this out of the back of my mind because the first person that received Social Security was a woman who never once paid a dime into it. And at the time she passed away, I think they said she received something like $65,000 in Social Security payouts. Now, originally it was meant to be for indigent individuals. If you're older, you had no savings, whatever. It was meant to help an indigent the teeth and was indigent individual but that's not what it is now every single person whether you're uh someone in sub-poverty level or you're a multi-billionaire you get social security 
Well, uh, the uh, the woman that you're talking about is uh, uh, Ida Fuller, because I, I wrote articles yes. on Social Security, and, yes. and I read the history of it. She paid $22 in Social Security taxes. She retired, lived a long life, and collected $22,000 in Social Security payments. Uh, all right. That, was was a great deal, that was a great deal for Ida Fuller. And what happened um, is Social Security taxes kicked in in 1936, I think, because the Social Security Act was passed in August of 1935, and so the Social Security Trust Fund was building up money for when people were retired at age 65 back then. And remember, life expectancy was not 65 back in 1935-1940 when Ida Fuller first collected her uh, Social Security check. And so the Social Security system was set up so it would not provide income to a lot of people because people weren't living that long. And so the other thing about Social Security, which is really sad, is that if you're a single person and you die, the money you put in Social Security is gone. It doesn't go into your estate to be distributed to your heirs. And so that's another scam about Social Security, that if you have an IRA or, or an other investment account and you saved all your life, you, that money would go into your estate and would be distributed to your, uh, to your uh, heirs or to whatever organizations you want to donate to. And so that's why Social Security is not a real retirement program. It essentially is an intergenerational chain letter. And when I first learned about this more than 50 years ago, I said one day the system will be in trouble, and now the trustees of Social Security have announced that in less than 10 years, the, the trust fund will be empty, and that if nothing is done, then Social Security uh, uh, benefits will have to be cut by 23%. So we have a real problem here that the members of Congress and the president, whoever that is, is kicking the can down the road, so to speak, and instead of addressing the issue, saying, listen, this program has good intentions, but it's unsustainable, so let's pay off the recipients and allow young people to... Uh, to save for their retirement, and, and that and that's the end of uh, uh, the problem with Social Security. But instead, uh, they're going to keep on raising the uh, the uh, level of uh, Social Security uh, dollars that are subject to taxes, and they haven't raised the rate on on the payroll tax rate on that. So who knows what it's, what's going to emerge over the next few years? But I want to be in this debate saying, listen, this thing can't sustain itself because it was bailed out twice uh, under Carter and under Reagan in the late 70s, early 80s, and now it's going to have to get bailed out again if, uh, because the, the culture of America is that, well, this program is, is a promise to the American people, but uh, any, interestingly enough, in 1960, the Supreme Court ruled that no one is entitled to Social Security because it's just a promise of the federal government, and if the federal government wanted to, it could end Social Security tomorrow by passing a law and everyone would be, would be out who's collecting it. Of course, they're not going to do that because that would be political suicide and create a revolution. But the point is the Supreme Court ruled that no one's entitled to Social Security even though they paid into it. Exactly, exactly. And look what's happening in France now. They want to raise yes. the retirement age. And look at the riots that they're already, yep. they're protesting the riots going on. You do this. Remember the commercials, the election commercials, throwing Granny off the the cliff. Yeah. The Republican yeah. that looked like uh, Paul Ryan throwing Granny off the trip, the cliff. That will happen again. They'll resurrect those ads. Oh, the evil, evil people trying to do away with Social Security. Now, like you, I'm on Social Security. Uh, I got my mom. But if you yank this from people who have never had enough money put aside for sure. their older sure. sunset days, what do you do? And here again, you talked about public-private enterprises. And it used to be if you were at a person who had no savings and you were older in your life, 
there were different nonprofit institutions that would sure. step up and give you yep. a helping hand. There was a community that formed yep. around you to make sure you were taken care of, unless you were that crotchety old SOP that everyone turns around and says, hey, you were a hell on wheels as a kid. Forget yep. about it. Well, this is why uh, people need to take charge of their lives, and I've always believed that since I was a youngster. Because my, I saw my father go to work, my mother eventually went to work, when my younger brother went to school, and they saved for uh, their children themselves, and that and that's how it was. And um, that ethic has has disappeared to a large degree because people are looking to Washington to make the to make the their income uh, better than than it otherwise would be, but. It, what I'm saying is that our incomes would be a lot higher if we had the ability to save over our lifetime and help build America through investments in, in quality companies. And, of course, people who are more risk takers would invest in startups. That's what venture capital is all about. Um, and you look at the history of the stock market, the stock market, even though with ups and downs, over the long term, 40, 50, 60 years, it's returned 9% a year. That's much better than what Social Security is now providing people who are uh, putting money into the Social Security Trust Fund. So the, the answer is very simple. Save and invest for your, for your future and everything will be fine. That means lowering taxes so people can put money aside. And we have to instill that culture of savings, which has uh, to, uh, to a large degree disappeared in America because people are spending money like crazy. The credit card debt is at an all-time high. And uh, this is part of the uh, consumerism that, uh, that the politicians and, the, and a lot of economists uh, preach. All right, well, Murray, it has been a pleasure. We ran out of time. I wanted to throw one last thing at you, but we're going to have to hold off for until next time because you had an article, an excellent article about uh, Alan Dershowitz and Alvin Bragg. So we've got to have to have you come back on real soon. Promise me you will. I certainly will, Annie. It's always a pleasure being with you. All right, God bless. And where can people find you? Well, on murraysabrin.substack.com, I just wrote a new piece today on how 20,000 Americans can change the course of American history. It's on murraysabrin.substack.com, and if people read it and follow what I'm proposing, uh, what we can do over the next four years, because it, three years, because in three years is the 250th anniversary of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, which ignited the American Revolution. God bless, Murray. You have a blessed Thank day. Thank you, Wendy. Thank God. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, check out Murray. And also, link to his book is up on the show page. Click on it and download his book. I want to welcome from Heritage Foundation, welcome her back to the show, uh, Brenda Hafera. She is, if I can get this correct, the Assistant Director and Senior Policy Analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Simon Center for American Studies. Welcome back, Brenda. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me again. Oh, it is our pleasure. Good Lord, there's so much stuff going on out there. My head is spinning right now. But we were talking about a lot of stuff that we're talking about today, whether it's through the economy or through uh, different policies being put in place. Wokeism is running rampant, and I think it's hitting a tipping point because they're now going after institutions and ideas that are completely incompatible. Now, I was at Colonial Williamsburg when the village had just opened. It was brand new. goes to show how long ago that was. And it breaks my heart to see them trying to alter the truth and history of the founding of this nature, nation and the 
beautiful historic museum that is Williamsburg, uh, Virginia. My goodness, are they crazy? Are they really trying to destroy America by changing our history? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, this is a trend, not just the Colonial Williamsburg, but at a lot of other historic sites and museums. And Colonial Williamsburg has been moving in this direction for some time, it seems, and they've reached a crossroads where they need to decide, are they going to be a historic site that promotes education, like George Washington's Mount Vernon is still doing, or are they going to move towards being an activist site, which James Madison's Montpelier has entirely become? And the reason I say that is because at Colonial Williamsburg, what they're primarily dedicating their time and resources to are tours and performances that teach history through the lens of a group identity, so African-American history, women's history, the trades and museums, and British history. But the end result of that is that very little time is dedicated to learning about the American revolutionaries. And what they're missing is the comprehensive story of Colonial Williamsburg itself, of what happened there and why it's important and how that fits into the wonderful American story. Uh, by altering our history, they alter the reason why we are where we are today. You have to look at the good and the bad and how we overcame the good. Uh, the founding building blocks that were placed there for us that led us up into uh, the Civil War, the Civil Rights, uh, actions and, and, and legislation to where we are today and to I, show that, hey, listen, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so I, I completely agree, and I think the vast majority of people completely agree. You know, there's this, this caricatured argument that, well, we don't want to talk about slavery, and I don't think anyone actually believes that's the case. We should be talking about slavery. It's part of our history. It's part of the American story. But we also need to be putting it in the proper context of something that always contradicted our principles and that generations of Americans contributing, contributed to eliminating. And the complete American story doesn't include just these sins and these negative things, but also our triumphs. And you can't tell the whole American story without telling the story of folks like James Madison and Patrick Henry and all these revolutionaries who contributed. Think what's really going on here, what these sort of sites are aiming towards is to taint the principles of the American founding because if you taint those sufficiently, those of the Constitution and the Declaration, you open up the opportunity for them to be replaced by something else, something like critical race theory or identity politics. And as long as you have identity politics, you can then divide the nation. If the nation remains mm -hmm. divided, you can control it better. And it's all about power and control. Right, and I think th this is disastrous and really disheartening for America and for our future as a country, as a united people but it's also a disservice to the individual because stoking grievance and growing and, and living in resentment 
never made anyone kind or gracious or strong. It just dispirits them, especially our children. That's not what we teach our children. It's not what parents want for their children. They want their kids to be optimistic about the future and ambitious and believe that they can achieve all these things and that they're part of this great story of America because it is great despite our setbacks and lamentable contradictions. We've done a lot to further the cause of human freedom and that acknowledgement then calls our children to be part of that and to contribute to that process. Yeah, because here I'm listening, looking at the stuff. They now have a gender and sexual diversity research committee. And that really does have no place within the founding of this nation in actuality. Um, There were rumors of some of the generals, you know, sexual proclivity, whether they leaned one way or another. It didn't matter. They got the job done. They brought us victory against the British. The the troops didn't care who was leading them. They just wanted competent leaders. So meritocracy holds no place in this new agenda that we're seeing coming up from the left. Right, and they certainly would not agree with the entire ideology that comes associated with things like gender and sexual diversity committees, which they separate out sex from gender because they believe that gender is a social construct, and that is just anathema to the American founding. But more than that, that committee is for their performances, which I think is really the area where Colonial Williamsburg is kind of drifting into the advocacy. It happens during the tours as well because tour guides seem to want to prod guests with political questions. But the performances... There's one that was entitled Created Equal, which had some good content. It was to promote different opinions and perspectives on the Declaration of Independence. But then it strays into the political and has actors saying things like the 13th Amendment was an avenue for the re-enslavement of black men through the prison system. And during another tour or performance on Draw the Line, one of the actors claimed that this country is here because of black people because of fear of black people getting their liberty which is an echo of some of the most inaccurate claims of the 1619 project so it's the same kind of narrative it's amazing what i found extremely scary is you write about the american alliance of museums Tell us about that and why we should be fearful. It used to be the museums were there, they taught you pure history, but now it's social engineering. Right. So this is, Colonial Williamsburg is not alone. This does seem to be a general trend. And the American Alliance of Museums includes 35,000 either individuals who work at museums or museums and historic institutions themselves. And through their material, it is just rife with diversity, equity, and inclusion language. And the sense is that they don't think teaching history isn't enough, that museums really have to engage in activism. They say in those materials that museums should champion an anti-racist movement to create a more just and equitable world. 
And another example is a, a set of guidelines that was produced by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and James Madison's Montpelier on how to teach slavery. And in that document, they say that it's not enough to discuss the humanity and contributions of the enslaved, that these institutions should also unpack and interrogate white supremacy and systemic racism. And unfortunately, uh, William and Mary, who is a partnership with Colonial Williamsburg on the Bray School, has adopted these guidelines themselves. This is scary stuff that you write about, because you write also about a prescribed research methodology. And this, this really, instead of actually looking at the document, what it says, they want you to do something different. Right, so that is, that is also in the guidelines that, that were produced by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and James Madison's Montpelier. And they're really elevating uh, family histories and word-of-mouth histories to the level of other documentations, which is problematic to do because, you know, people are biased and they're inaccurate in what they say and our memories are unreliable. So there's a reason historians have historically said you need kind of supplementary materials to verify those oral histories. And another thing they do in that document is they say that descendants of those who were enslaved should have equal parity on governing boards. And if you look at how they define descendants, they say it's not just folks who have a genealogical connection, but those who feel connected to the work the institution is doing, whether or not they know of a genealogical connection. And what that really is, is a political maneuver to try and get control of these sorts of places, which did indeed happen at James Madison's Montpelier and its governing board is, is politically allied. Well, we saw when Trump was in office, uh, members of his inner circle or their advisors or whatever being yanked off of various boards. Sean Spicer comes to mind on that. And they have been using politics to determine whether or not you are deemed suitable on these various boards. Uh, so they're using politics to reform the elite society. And what happens in today's society, everyone looks up to the elites. They're the ones that guide us. They're, they're the ones that set the trend. So the trend is being set, and we peons are supposed to march lockstep within that. Yeah, I find that very disturbing. And another, another piece of that is the influence of corporations and corporate donors to these historic sites. So at the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which owns 27 sites around the country, has accepted donations from Mackenzie Scott, from the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and George Soros's Open Society Foundation. And the Mellon Foundation has given money to Montpelier, to Colonial Williamsburg, to a lot of these other places. They committed $250 million to reimagine and rebuild commemorative spaces and transform the way history is told in the United States. So there are some elites that, that are doing this, and I think that is an indication that these historic sites are, are moving in a certain direction because 
more of a small group of people who are yelling the loudest and they're being told that this is what the American public in general wants and what these donors want. And I think we need to push back in a commensurate fashion and, and say, no, actually the American people just want to be taught American history in a fair and unbiased manner. And those folks need to speak out and say that this is indeed what they want. And, and uh, again, George Washington's Mount Vernon is a good example of that. They receive a million visitors per year, and they're still doing a very good job of teaching about George Washington. Well, um, I'm looking at the clock. Oh, good Lord, we only have about 10 minutes left. Boy, this show has gone so, so fast. <laughs> you, cause, um, uh, was it Corinne sent me your articles. Uh, Tom is now going and I congratulate him on his promotion and welcome Corinne to send people, wonderful people like you over to our show every week. But you write about our lost boys and the attack on the core basic family has been going on since the Johnson administration where he succeeded in breaking apart the family. Uh, and this has been going ongoing. If you can break apart the family, you can then control the offspring, which is what we're seeing happening today. We're losing the manhood in our society. And suddenly now the whole world is turning upside down. But the ramifications of children being born into a, a family unit that is not a traditional family unit is deep and dark. You get higher high school dropouts, more drug abuse, sexual abuse, alcoholism, early death, uh, uh, criminal records, and we know if we have a core traditional family in place, that's less likely to happen because we know now that child is likely to go on in life to succeed, go on for a higher education, or become successful in life and produce another traditional family. They're destroying our nation from within by destroying the family first. Right. It's it's really a disaster, and it's deeply saddening. Warren Farrell and John Gray wrote an incredible book on this topic, The Boy Crisis, and the, the statistics are just staggering. Young boys are, are falling behind academically. They're more likely to die from deaths of despair, which are deaths from things like suicide and drugs and alcoholism. They're more likely to be addicted to opioids and online pornography, be, to be withdrawn, their life has actually, their lifespan has actually been shortened and parts of their brain do not fully develop. And this is really, as you mentioned, largely driven by a lack of fathers in the home with 44% of children being born out of wedlock. And it's compounded by us not having male-only spaces and role models for these boys, which can kind of help offset the disastrous effects of not having a dad. But in some certain communities, there aren't a lot of male role models, period. And so young boys don't have anyone to look to. And luckily there has been more literature coming out about this. Nicholas Eberstadt wrote a book about men without work, about how men are willingly exiting the labor force and they're spending a great deal of time on screens and can kind of get by by living with a, a girlfriend or a mother and, and collecting some money from the government. Uh, William Reeves, or sorry, Richard Reeves has come out with another book, and uh, Christina Hoff Summers wrote about this almost 15, 20 years ago, and how 
the education system with a lack of recess and kind of play is really disadvantaging boys. It is. We're destroying whole generations of our youth. And by allowing these um, woke policies and then the indoctrination of our children through the gender influence, I mean, children that have not don't even understand the difference between boys and girls yet being taught about gender fluidity. Uh, children that are starting to enter into puberty and are confused being taught gender fluidity. Uh, children are being separated and isolated by the social media. Instead of going out to play baseball and ride your bike, they sit in front of their screens and they feel like they're popular because they've got more friends online than they do at school, and it's just sad that we're seeing a generation after generation lost to these ideologies. Right, and and so much data has come out indicating that young people are anxious and depressed as a result of spending too much time in front of screens and on social media. It's it's not good. It's not healthy. It doesn't help us form real live relationships and form connections. And as you said, there. Part of this is ideological, it seems, that young boys are constantly being told that all masculinity is toxic. And they don't have, unfortunately, examples then of healthy masculinity for those who are growing up without a father. And so they're really dispirited and told from the get-go that, you know, the future is female and all these things. And girls are educated or girls are encouraged to pursue education and opportunities which is good, but we don't offer the same encouragement to our boys. We're constantly telling them that they're unnecessary, that women and men no longer need each other because women have achieved economic independence, which, again, it's good to tell people to develop their talents, but men and women still have wonderful things to learn from each other, and we will always need each other. It's not just about economics. It's also about living a good life and having a healthy marriage and, and raising children well. And there's so much more to, to discuss on this, and we have to start fighting back. And I've said this several times on the show just today, and that in a way this pandemic has opened the eyes of parents and of society, and I think we're starting to put the brakes on it. I hope we are starting to put the brakes on it. And we're seeing the rise of traditional Christian classical education. We're seeing the rise of charter schools, homeschooling, because parents woke up. We're seeing parents actually showing up at school board meetings and voicing their opinions. Uh, and this is important that it's not just parents. It should be the average taxpayer, you and I. Uh, I was not blessed with children, but I'll go to a school board meeting and I'll speak out because that's my tax dollars going to my community, and I have a say of where it goes. And we have to take our nation back one voice at a time. I agree. There there are signs for hope and optimism. And one thing I would add to the charge of parents who are already doing so much is they do need to be careful, actually, about these museums and historic sites. One, because their kids are going on field trips there and learning sometimes a distorted version of our history, but also because many of these sites are now producing curriculum or are working on producing curriculum. James Madison's Montpelier produced anti-racist curriculum for use in Virginia public schools and has received both federal and state funding. The Lincoln Cottage 
offers social and emotional learning curriculum, which is another site owned by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. So parents really need to be always vigilant about what their children are learning because, it's, I mean, nothing matters more than this. Well, Heritage, they always you guys do such fantastic work over there. Are you compiling a list of these museums and education centers to let parents know what is going on? Yes, yeah, so we do have a parental guide that is specifically on George Washington's Mount Vernon, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, and James Madison's Montpelier. And George Washington's Mount Vernon is the place I recommend the most. They're telling an even-handed account of history that is based on the primary sources. They're very particular about that, which is good. And they have an entire museum and education center dedicated to George Washington. They are talking about slavery, and, and as they should, in an even-handed manner and incorporated into the story about Mount Vernon. Thomas Jefferson, uh, Monticello, and Colonial Williamsburg are a bit in the same boat where they are, seem to be at a crossroads where they're doing some things well and other things not so well. And Thomas Jefferson's Monticello doesn't have much emphasis on Thomas Jefferson's political achievements at this point. So they need to decide which direction that they're going to go in in the future. And then James Madison's Montpelier, unfortunately, has wholly adopted a critical race theory narrative and no longer has any exhibits on James Madison himself. And their sole exhibit on the Constitution is part of their slavery exhibit, which aims to paint the Constitution as a pro-slavery document. So that parental guide is available on heritage.org if parents would like to take a closer look. Well, God bless you, Brenda, for the hard work you do over there. And you know you're always welcome back here anytime. Uh, thank you for having me. I would love to join you again. All right. And tell Corinne she did a great job sending you over and thank thank her for, for me, please. I will. I enjoyed this very much, and I appreciate the support. Okay. Take care, Brenda. People can find you over at heritage.org. God bless the hard work she and Heritage does over there. We've had great guests. I want to thank Panky for jumping in with his questions and comments, especially up in the chat room. I've been reading them all along. Thank you for joining us and for Joe for his call in. We will be back next week. Um, we have Alan Chasen and Ed Ford. They have a book that came out and it is riveting reading, uh, Postcards Through Hell. And that deals wow. with them being contract workers over in Afghanistan. So we've got a lot to talk to him about that. I think we may have John O'Connor. Uh, he was the one that wrote uh, the book on uh, Watergate. Um, he may be joining us next week. And I think there's a third person. I've got to double-check my records. But we've got a rocking show coming up next week. And I hope you join us over there. And so and say, until then, good night and God bless. And where the heck is my show closing? <laughs> Where's my music? Where is it? <laughs> it's somewhere there. <laughs> what? It's, it's somewhere here. Where's my show closing? Uh, oh, here we go. I'm, I have to move this somewhere else. All right. My friend Gary Pecorella, right. uh, Save America. And so I say good night and God bless.
the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her or what matters most to you. That's why I stand for the plan and I kneel at the cross. For the friends I have loved and lost And ask you, please, because we trust In the freedom I fought for these friends I hope it's not too late To save America I have loved and lost in that state. 